Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary, temporary experts. experts. This week's topic is alcohol. Because it's St. Patty's Day, baby. Ooh, shamrock shakes. <laughs> Green beer. Yeah. But first, before we get to the fun stuff, some updates, Before Sarah. we get to the fun stuff, I literally have it titled Fun Facts with Sarah. <laughs> I, all right. You're, you're ready to go. All right. Lay it on us. So ready. With the most fun stuff, etymology. We're wondering about etymology and entomology, why they're such similar words when they're such different topics. And it's really just... With their root words, they are not related at all. Mm. Um, so etymology uh, has etium, etimon, E-T-Y-M-O-N, which means the origin of a word in Latin, which comes from the Greek word etimon, meaning literal meaning of a word according to its origin, uh, which also uh, Greek etimon comes in turn from etimos, which means true, blah, blah, blah. And uh, in on the Merriam-Webster, we've talked about how much like dictionary websites, mm. the Merriam-Webster actually in the page on etymology has a section that's like, be careful not to confuse etymology with the similar sounding entomology. Entomon means insect in Greek. So study of bugs. So it's a very common thing if you get those two words confused. And then the ology, logy part yeah. is just from Greek. Logia for like to speak, tell, the character of, or development of one who speaks or treats of a certain subject. There you go. Interesting. There you go. Next question. Is asbestos carbon-based? No, it's not. Yeah, it's a mineral. I forgot that asbestos is like naturally occurring to like mine yeah. it and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. So it is, it's a silica crystal, yeah. generally really, really fine fibers. And then when it breaks up and it becomes aerosolized and, and you breathe it in, it can do a lot of damage to your lungs. Yes. Stuff like that. But not carbon. Nope. Silicon-based. Yeah, silicon-based. There you go. Silicon-based life forms. Yeah. I mean, it's not a life form. It's a crystal, but... Maybe somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I just wonder if we should define valence, because we use that word a lot when we're talking mm -hmm. about chemistry. So valence is just like the outside ring, I'm doing air quotes, uh, or like the group of electrons that are the most involved in and most available for reactions to happen. Mm -hmm. So if we say valence, that's what we mean. And then one of the big ones, how to pronounce that scientist's name... We were not sure. So uh, it's Leo Szilard in the English kind of pronunciation of it. So he's Hungarian. And in Hungarian, an SZ, which his name starts with, is an S, as in like Franz Liszt. And an I is an E. So what is Szilard in an English pronunciation is Szilard in mm. a Hungarian pronunciation. And Leo is actually pronounced Leo. So now you know. Mm -hmm. And final one. What is a ranch school? Because I neglected to look it up before. And I have a nice uh, little blurb here from a Manhattan Project website. It is, In 1918, entrepreneur Ashley Pond began an outdoor school at Los Alamos to provide boys a chance to gain health, strength, and self-confidence. The Los Alamos Ranch School combined a rigorous outdoor education with a college preparatory education. Interesting. Very so, interesting. Ranching and schooling. So were there other ranch schools or only this, like, one specific one from there, the Manhattan Project? <laughs> there were other ranch schools. How come we're not going to ranch school now? I want to go to ranch school. Yeah, you I want grew a up rigor, here, so. I want a rigorous outdoor experience <laughs> with college preparatory education. 
It sounds grand. Yeah. We missed out. I mean, they're doing that thing now where they're having like outdoor kindergartens and stuff, which are really, really popular. So makes sense. It's only a matter of time for the return of the ranch school. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> there you cool. go. Some rapid fire, some rapid fire updates. Rapid Va- fire fun facts. I went to try to answer the valence one and I did some like research and I like I immediately was like, I can't speak to this. Like not because I don't know what valence is, but because like I got a little deep into it and yeah. it was like valence comes from the word power and like all these sorts of like weird things. And then it's just sort of become like, because we used it for so long, we continue to use it sort of things. Yeah. Um, but now like now typically when we talk about like electronic configurations, which is what we use instead of like the Bohr model and stuff like that. Uh, we call them orbitals yeah because it like more accurately accurately describes like what the electrons are doing they're orbiting around the nucleus good uh, yeah these are your excellent loosey-goosey ones yeah sounds great okay moving on well let's do it let's get right down to it uh so it uh this episode will hopefully you know <laughs> pending <laughs> pending davis not being lazy uh will hopefully come out exactly on saint patrick's day you're welcome. Uh, so when you're drinking yeah. your beers, yeah. you can learn some science. When you're wearing your green and drinking your shamrock shakes. Uh, so yeah, so we have been wanting to cover alcohol for a while. We talked originally about, just because, to, sorry to complete that segue, it's because St. Patrick's Day, particularly among the, uh, the college-aged youths, is a particularly big drinking holiday. Always was in my university. Oh, it's a big one. Uh, obviously, it's a big deal in a number of, like, East Coast American cities. New York, Boston. I don't know if it's as big a deal in Chicago, but, like, New York, Boston are the ones that come up a lot. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a pretty popular, like, drinking holiday. And we've been wanting to cover alcohol for a while. Originally, we were going to do it uh, because of the, you know, a lot of people do dry January. Yeah, beginning or of the dry year. Feb. Yeah, and then January just puts, like, some vacations and a bunch of other stuff going on. We ended up not doing as many episodes, and we really wanted to do uh, New Year's resolutions. So that ended up being kind of what we targeted. So then we just pushed this one down the line. We said, okay, we'll do alcohol for St. Patrick's Day. That seems like a pretty good fit. And luckily, in our society, there's always an excuse to drink. So we we didn't have to wait too long. I don't even need an excuse. Just have a beer, man. (laughs) Just have a beer whenever I want. (laughs) Exactly. Sitting there, noon in the home office, (laughs) drinking beer. No, I'm just kidding. An excuse for us to make it topical. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And for whatever reason, in 2022, a lot of our episodes have been, like, holiday-focused or centric. So, Well, we didn't um, get to do these ones last time. Exactly. Well, exactly. We're we're only... Actually, this will come up almost exactly on a year anniversary. Yeah. Um, But that's a topic for another time. Uh, So, yeah. So, we thought we would take a little bit of look at the look of, like, the science of alcohol... Um, and then the process of making what we colloquially refer to as alcohol or alcoholic beverages, uh, and then take a little bit, very, very, very quickly, um, at some of the history of alcohol, but we'll first do some of like the pharmacology and stuff like that of specifically like ethyl alcohol, which is what we drink and we'll work kind of towards that definition. And then we'll go into, uh, how does alcohol affect humans when we drink it? Like what happens to us, where it happens. And then I have a variety of drinking debunked questions Mm. so like those common questions that everyone thinks about with alcohol and you're never really sure if it's true because someone told you once and you like believe the ones you want to believe yeah Yeah. so i have a section for it but if they come up did uh did breaking the seal come up in your research okay because i had a really heated debate with kyle over the breaking (laughs) the seal and uh 
and the debate rages on. He thinks I he thinks I'm full of crap. So right. well, Kyle, um, you just uh, you just hold on there, bud. <laughs> you just wait. I know. Well, if we fly in the face of the discussion we had, that then I'm sure I'll hear about it. Very but curious. Anyway, so yeah, so we we thought we would kind of take a big zoomed out look, and we're gonna start way up from the top uh, for, with with me as a chemist getting on my little soapbox for a moment. So Davis, the chemist. Yes. What is an alcohol? So an alcohol is a subgroup of chemicals in organic chemistry. So typically, right, and as like basically once we get past this point, when we say alcohol, we're almost exclusively going to be referring to ethyl alcohol or ethanol, which is what appears in beer and wine and vodka and all of the drinks that we consume to make us inebriated. That's the active ingredient. If you're thinking about like, you know, what's the active ingredient in marijuana, it's THC, right? Alcohol is a drug. The active ingredient, the, the psychoactive product is ethanol. So typically, right, when we talk about alcohol, that's what we're referring to. But from a chemist, chemical standpoint, alcohols are actually this wide family of chemicals uh, that all share some a similar functional group, typically and uh, generally a similar type of structure, but there's sort of many variations on that structure within organic chemistry. So uh, in an alcohol, there's a particular group, it's called an, a hydroxyl group, which is an oxygen and a hydrogen that are bonded together. So without, visual, without visuals, this is kind of difficult to explain just because uh, organic chemistry is a principally visual subject uh, it's partly why people struggle with it so much because you're not really used to thinking that way mm. and like, and you're thinking in pictures and then pictures that like have no analog to like regular experience. Like you do math and you do like the area of a triangle and the area of a square. Well, you know what those shapes are, yeah. but then you start doing, you know, well, this hexagon is really like a planar benzene molecule because of the double bonds, but this hexagon is actually like a three dimensional warbly shape because it's a sugar and all this stuff. So it becomes quite, uh, complicated. That's if, why everyone yeah. has little model kits. Well, I, very, very true. Exactly. Because there's parts in organic chemistry that are based on three-dimensional awareness and they become really difficult to do if you don't have a model kit. Because uh, most people, their brains don't really work in three dimensions uh, uh, as well as sometimes we've come to learn about dealing with things in two dimensions. 3D manipulation of objects is just not something that's a uniform skill across the population. Yeah, depends how your brain is set up. A hundred percent. And there's very little you can do if you're someone who has a hard time 3D visualizing things. There's very little you can do to become like as good as someone who just like thinks that way naturally. Yeah. Um, as evidenced by many of my orgo classes. <laughs> um, but okay, so we yeah. have these OH groups. Yeah. So basically the way to think about it, you know, is, you know, you've got some long chain of stuff and then you have an oxygen and then a hydrogen like bond and the hydrogen is specifically bonded to that oxygen so if you think about like a straight line you got carbon 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 oxygen and then hydrogen right those carbons all have hydrogens on them too and like your oxygen in some you know your oxygen and other types of uh, organic molecules can actually be bonded to something else rather than h but it's just something to kind of like uh just to kind of visualize what this looks like it's often like on the end of a chain so the H is like the sidekick to the O. Yeah. And the to, O is yeah. hanging out with a really big molecule. Yeah, more or less. Like you, you start to get, if you get too, if we get too nitty gritty about it, you know, it starts to be like, well, the H is sometimes associated with the O, but in solution it's not. And that's sometimes what will lend like acidity 
to a substance and all this stuff because yeah like alcohols are generally acidic that h is free to move once it becomes a hydroxide atom an ion then it's an acid and it does all these other things in the solution technically it's going back and forth it's an equilibrium so this is just to highlight the fact that like you if you go too deep down this rabbit hole it it you know basically organic organic chemistry if you look at it too closely all the way down it's just a bunch of gobbledygook of well everything is happening at all all of the time and we're just trying to influence stuff to go the way we want it to go. That's okay. like organic synthesis. Okay. But so, sorry, yeah. So hydroxyl groups, the thing that makes alcohol alcohol. Yes. It O-H. is OH. The H Only is like the sidekick to the O that can go off on its own. It has a bit of autonomy, but mostly hangs out with the O. Yeah. For so, our purposes. Yeah. So basically the O, <laughs> and because oxygen is really electronegative, which means that it's a, it's very far on the right side of the periodic table. So it likes electrons. Like it wants that electron behavior and it'll essentially like uh, take it from the hydrogen. The hydrogen becomes like a free flowing point charge, a uh, positive point charge. And that's what sort of drives like acidic acidity and all this sorts of stuff, right? Like power hydrogen and whatnot. Uh, Whereas like an OH group, a hydroxyl group floating on its own will have a negative charge again because of the oxygen. Uh, and it wants to attract more electrons to it. It can hold on to more electrons than other um, elements on the left side of the table. If I recall correctly, oxygen has six valence electrons, right? Yes. In an orbital that wants eight. Yeah. So, so that's why it's always trying to like steal two more so it can get that eight and be stable and happy. Yeah. So it has a partially filled P orbital, uh, which is one of the hybridized orbitals that typically comes on the in the non-organic side of the table on the right hand side uh and so yeah typically at six uh molecular oxygen which is o2 which is stuff we breathe actually ends up with you know you would think about it well it'll form a double bond because there's you know a free like just the way that sort of you think typically think about the electronics and stuff like that but actually molecular oxygen is actually free radical on either side because of uh oxygen's nature is like a very electronegative molecule but that's sort of more more to deal with like <laughs> cellular respiration than like alcohol as a chemical so to kind of bring it back in so oh is this big it's the functional group so in chemistry organic chemistry specifically we talk about functional groups so there's all these different functional groups um that have particular structures that make um, that are indicative of a chemical's behaviors essentially so these oh hydroxyl group on an alkyl chain, which is a chain of carbons and hydrogens, is makes it an alcohol. Perfect. If you have, you know, an OH group, but also then a double bonded oxygen to that same carbon that the hydroxyl group is bonded to, now you're into a carboxyl group. And that has different properties. Then you can have ketones where there's an oxygen just double bonded to a carbon in the middle of the chain. You can have esters. You can have ethers. Like there's all these different types of functional groups that just have to do with specific types of structures. Um, a lot of them, the oxals will generally have oxygen in them. Uh, but then you also have ones like the nitrites and stuff like that that have nitrogen. Sometimes you have phosphites, you know, all those sorts of ones. So there's lots of different functional groups in chemistry. It's really a new language. Or a different language. You know, it was sort of interesting <laughs> as I was as I was going through this too. Like, I kind of was like, you know, I got to a point in the chemistry education where like I really struggled with chemistry in high school, and then for some reason made this inane decision to do chemistry in university. <laughs> Partly, I think because I, it was something I struggled with, but it interested me. And you know, now as a you know, you know, a, a bachelor's in chemistry or whatever, and I'm not a very much a practicing chemist today, but yeah, like a lot of this vernacular is just like second nature because you have to drill it. Yeah. By the time you're in second or third year chemistry, if you don't just know 
some of these words and like you might have to reference some of them here or there but you know like sulfate versus sulfite because like that the a and the i make a huge difference in yeah. structure and stuff like that all this stuff if you don't know that stuff it becomes very very difficult to do anything yeah you're really. looking stuff up all the time yeah exactly so it is it's its own language but there's a the nice thing about chemistry is there's a real structure to the way the language yeah. is is designed so but yeah going through this i was just like i was just like oh yeah it's all second nature i can't believe people have a problem with this and then i was like oh right because most people haven't sat out to like memorize like what's an alk al an alkyne versus an alkene versus an alkane versus an alkyne like you know it's all these what's an aromatic group like all these little things that you just start to know when you when you use them every day so if you're at home and Davis is speaking another language to you, he is. Don't worry. It's yeah. not just you. Yeah. So typically <laughs> when we draw the structure of an alcohol or um, when we describe what alcohol is, we use the, um, I guess, the standard of R, the letter R hyphen O-H, capital O, capital H, right? Like the elements. R is like your X in math when you first start doing right. arithmetic or algebra, sorry, is your R is your variable. So R is an alkyl group, which is a chain of singly bound carbons. Um, and so in ethanol's case, which we'll talk about a lot, ethanol is not so much the IUPAC name, but it's the sort of uh, the common name that we use yeah. for that particular alcohol. It has an ethyl group, which is a two carbon chain. So CH3, CH2, that's the alkyl group. But you can have alkyl groups like, so again, again, there's another bit of like, um, there's some prefixes in language there where you've got, you know, uh, methanol, meth, metho or whatever being one, right. then ethyl being two, propane or propyl or whatever being like P-R-O-P being three, uh, butane, but being four, uh, and then you start to get to the ones that are a little bit more recognizable, pentane, hexane, um, septane. septane, octane, nonane, do uh decane? decane yeah and then you it's keep time to shine. you keep going right <laughs> those ones become a little bit more standard but it's some sort of alkyl chain and it doesn't actually have to be a single a chain of singly bound you can have an aromatic ring there you can have a number of different structures but that oh is the really the principal thing that makes an alcohol some alcohols will have one hydroxyl group oh group that'll be those primary alcohols ethyl alcohol or ethanol is an example of a primary uh, alcohol but you can also have secondary or tertiary ones where they'll have two or three um oh groups respectively and then you can also have on the alkyl chain you can have branches so you can have a straight chain like an ethyl alcohol you can have branches like isopropyl alcohol which has um if you've ever seen the chemical structure of it it's like oh and then a line and it looks like and then going out in two different directions from that center point like an upside down y yeah, exactly, like an upside-down Y. Uh, and then you can also have, like, an even more branch than you can have, um, you know, uh, circular shapes and stuff like that. So, basically, the, the crux of what I'm trying to say is that <laughs> alcohols are this huge group of chemicals. And we typically, in, in like, human vernacular, when we talk about alcohol, we're, we're talking about a very specific one. Yeah. But there are a whole range of things. It's the difference, like, the colloquial versus the scientific. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the big things, right, so alcohols have a number of different uses. Obviously, a major one is beverage manufacturing, obvious examples, beer, wine, spirits, those sorts of things. Uh, alcohols also appear as solvents in paints and other coatings. A lot of paints uh, by design are nonpolar because the, a lot of paints 
what they're those surface uh, coatings and things like that. What they're designed to do is they're designed to protect your surface often from the effects of water and the various things that water has in it and it can do to stuff, right? The paint on your car. It's there to protect the metal from the oxidation process. Right. Uh, so, you know, you use alcohols and things like that because they're both, they're like partially soluble in water and then they just help like create, you know, they break up um, nonpolar uh, objects and things like that or, or residues. So you can use it as cleaning material sometimes. Yeah. Is that like, that's like rubbing alcohol or isopropyl alcohol, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then you've got like your antiseptic uses, again, rubbing alcohol, isopropyl, uh, your antifreeze in your car, especially like, so oh. a lot of places where it's warm and never gets below zero degrees, there's still water in their windshield washer fluid or in there, even into your, um, that's wild. I never, I never thought of that because I'm like, it'll freeze, but it doesn't freeze everywhere. Of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So some places they just put water in their radiators and stuff like that. But here you have to use antifreeze. Um, is yeah. this the same thing of like, if you put beer in the freezer and it won't freeze? No, it'll well, just will. Um, it, the water that has to do a number of different things. If you put a beer in the freezer, you can keep liquor in the freezer. Yeah, well, liquor has a much higher alcohol content, so it's not as likely to, it's not going to freeze as readily. Okay. As where something like beer is only about 5%, but the explosion stuff really comes from the fact that it's carbonated. Ah, and as it starts to freeze, some of that CO2 needs somewhere to go. So if you, like, froze pop, would the same thing happen? Yeah. If you freeze oh. a pop can, the exact same thing happens. It explodes. Yeah. All right, there you go. Don't freeze your pop cans. Yeah. So, <laughs> um... Yeah, and then sometimes, and again, because it's a solvent, you'll see it in dyes, perfumes, like just alcohols of all kinds. Um, and uh, and then because it is a hydrocarbon, it will be naturally occurring in most like bitumen or oil products. And then it actually is present in gasoline, uh, particular like branching alcohols. Because the more there's, and then the signs of gasoline and like the chains and things that are in it and stuff like that, it's like a whole other kind of conversation. We won't get into that today. Well, it's just not, it's just not even really a discussion worth having unless you're like engineering gasoline because oh. it's like, oh, well, you want a certain number of like, oh, you want more straight chain. Oh, you want more branch chain and this type of fuel. Like it just changes depending on the needs of the fuel. Okay. Just and like then, efficiencies and yeah. whatnot. Yeah. And like, and like, uh, octane rating uh. is based off of like so they basically said it's like well if you would i think it's it, i'm i haven't double checked this so like because i'm just doing it off the cuff but it's something like if you have pure octane it burns at a certain efficiency and then we monitor gasoline all compared to that this per- particular octane level mm-hmm. and then we say like oh, okay so like it's 86 percent or something I'd, I'd have to double check but there's it so octane is it is itself an alkyl chain but then also a a type of octane gasoline just becomes the standard of with against which all others are measured okay. to to show the efficiency of the fuel essentially okay. that's why premium gasolines have a higher octane rating right yeah because they burn more efficiently as compared to the standard or and then compared to those other types of um gasoline gotcha yeah okay, so we have uh it doesn't freeze yeah what else does what else are properties about so alcohols? yeah so Alcohol, like if you, so like reagent grade, which is generally 95% plus of like ethyl alcohol, say like, yeah, won't freeze. It's just, there's not enough. Not like in a regular freezer. No, like you yeah. could freeze. It has yeah. a freezing point <laughs> of some type. Um, so generally alcohols have slightly higher boiling points. Uh, and this is due to the intramolecular forces. So this is between the molecules of like, so you think about, you know, a, a bucket of alcohol. It's got trillions and trillions of molecules of ethyl alcohol. So the oxygens, right, you might be familiar with hydrogen bonding, right, Um, where it's typically like an oxygen 
will attract a hydrogen. So with water itself, the oxygen uh, on a single molecule of water attracts the hydrogen of another uh, molecule and they kind of, they want to be close together. So that's why water comparative to other um, substances throughout the universe that actually have higher molecular weights like carbon dioxide, why water is liquid throughout the universe because of these intramolecular forces that hold, that allow, it's basically what gives water like a lot of the properties that it, basically all the properties that it has is because of the strength of hydrogen bonding. That's why um, snowflakes form hexagonal patterns because of the number of hydrogen bonds that each individual oxygen molecule makes. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's, you can, you can draw some diagrams and actually like demonstrate why it's always going to grow into a six-sided pattern and stuff like that. It's very, very interesting. Very neat. Just basically has to do with like a lot of geometry and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So the same hydrogen bonding is happening in alcohol, right? Because you have that oxygen group. Essentially, you can imagine that the oxygen is bonded on one side, bonded on the other side, and then it has four, uh, like it has two valence pairs, which are electrons like to be paired up in the orbitals. It's the way all the orbitals are yeah. constructed. Uh, so those two are basically very negative centers of charge and they'll attract those other positive hydrogen point charges and um, that are associated with other alcohols and stuff like that. So it holds things a little bit tightly together. Then longer chain alcohols, so that's where the alkyl group is longer. So longer than ethyl, ethane and stuff like that, or um, like ethyl alcohol, they'll have more what's called van der Waals forces. So the longer chains of carbons, again, you have to think about like any molecule is essentially... It's essentially like a magnetic cloud that is distributed along the molecule. Like this magnetic cloud of electrons that have a negative charge are all associated around all these nuclei that have a positive charge. So when you build up these big molecules, you essentially have this big diffuse cloud of charge throughout the molecule. And so with a long chain car like uh, hydrocarbons, where it's just like carbon and hydrogen really, really long, those point charges they fluctuate and they basically allow long chain hydrocarbons to want to stay closer together because as those things fluctuate, they'll fluctuate the, the electronics of another molecule and they just sort of will want to make each other happy and they'll try to attract each other because the charge can essentially move somewhat freely between the individual um, like atoms in the molecule. Neat. To a certain extent. Yeah. This, you, the discussion of this, like this is, you know, there are people who spend their whole lives studying this. Right, because this is such a principal part of how like synthetic chemistry and just chemistry in general works uh, in today's world. So it's a so there's these intramolecular forces and they allow um, alcohols to have like slightly higher boiling points um, due to some of these uh, properties and stuff like that. So higher boiling point meaning you have to get it hotter for the alcohol to burn off. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, and I feel like I'm gonna misspeak on this later, but yeah. So yeah. they have slightly higher boiling points because they have more intramolecular forces. This is, sorry, and I really should specify here, this is higher boiling points compared to other hydrocarbons. So this is not like a higher boiling point than water. Oh, because I was like, that's not right though. No, exactly. Because, <laughs> sorry, and that's really good. This is because I was thinking for a moment, I was like, wait, that's not quite I was right. Like, no, it's and right. I didn't specify that it's higher boiling points than similar hydrocarbons. So you think okay. of ethane, which is just CH3CH3, um, like two uh, methyl groups bonded together that that molecule will have a much, much, much lower boiling point than ethyl alcohol because of the hydrogen bonding of ethyl alcohol. So the ethane will, ethane will be more likely to just, you know, evaporate into the atmosphere and stuff like that, essentially. And it will boil faster. Okay. Yeah. There so, we go. Good catch. Because, yeah, I was, like, I was like, that doesn't quite make sense. Uh -huh. But I'm like, I'm not comparing it to water. I'm comparing it to kind of 
molecules of a similar type. Okay, they're um, because of compared again compared to your regular hydrocarbons, they alcohol is uh, are soluble in water. Generally, if you've got a longer hydrocarbon chain, they're a little bit less soluble. Again, because that hydrocarbon part doesn't really want to have anything to do with water. Again, yeah. it has to do with uh, charges and water is polar, whereas um, hydrocarbons are not. But that hydroxyl group gives it a fair amount of polarity and will allow it to be soluble in water, which is obviously super important because otherwise you couldn't have alcoholic beverages. Everything yeah. would have to be 100% alcohol. But it's also why there's a little bit of saying, like, you know, sometimes you make a mixed drink. Mm -hmm. um, they say, to like, well, you got to really mix it up so that the alcohol doesn't all sink to the bottom, oh. right? Because they will separate someone, right? Oh. Especially because now you're adding a liquor that has its own sort of makeup into a you know a juice or something again that'll have its own specific gravity and all this stuff so they you have to kind of mix them up intentionally yeah uh, is, this, is this kind of like how you can have like you make drinks that have different layers to them or does that have to do with yeah. more like the stuff that's mixed in with the alcohol well it's the same like grenadine yeah. is heavier right it's like yeah. syrupy so it'll sink that's how you get your, your tequila sunrises yeah. Right. Well, that's exactly right. And so that's like something that they play with in mixology is the different densities. Mm -hmm. So it's more so that like, yeah, you'll be mixing several things together where you've, you've explicitly manipulated the density or you're using something that already, you know, has a higher density again, like your syrups and stuff like that. So there's a number of things you can do with that. Um, it wouldn't maybe necessarily be so much that you would play with like th that each alcohol's density would be slightly different, but you would be doing stuff like okay, I want to have a colored level of this, so I might add some dye and then, you know, a bunch of sugar or something to this water so that it's a little bit heavier mm. or whatever, whatever you might be adding to it. Cool. Yeah. Uh, as I said earlier, alcohols are acidic in nature. This becomes really important for things like beer and wine because the low pH acts as a, a part of the preservative function. Uh, and then in terms of a chemical standpoint, uh, you can do a number of chemical reactions on hydroxyl groups. And so uh, we call them spontaneous chemical reactions. That doesn't mean they're just going to happen out of nowhere, but it means that they're energetically favorable. So once you create the conditions and give the uh, action, like the um, act activation energy to the reaction, it'll proceed to completion. Again, this is like an oversimplification because it's really an equilibrium and you can push it back and forth. But it basically just means that once you start it, it's going to want to progress to a finished state, so okay. to speak. Uh, so it's just really useful for chemical synthesis because you can essentially say, I'm going to take an, I want to attach this alkyl chain to this other molecule. Well, one of the ways I can do it is by, you know, attaching a hydroxyl group to the end of my alkyl chain and then using that functional group to drive chemistry to attach the group that I want to attach to my other molecule. It's a number of different ways of doing stuff. That is like, I couldn't even really speak to it. It's been so long since I did some of that stuff, but Yeah. So that is this the the whole broad spectrum like alcohol as a group of chemicals. Right. And then uh, and I just wanted to cover that because I think like in the discussion of alcohol we typically only ever bring up ethanol. Yes, we use the colloquial. Exactly. And we just we just don't talk about the other alcohol. Sometimes you'll see isopropyl come up a little bit as a disinfectant, yeah. or you know people saying like, well, if you drink methanol, you'll go blind. Those sorts of things. And some of those things are important because methanol and eth and isopropyl alcohol are going, and a few other little alcohols are going to be products of a fermentation process as well. Like you're gonna, get, and then in particularly in distilling, like methanol is a huge problem in certain types of distillation because you can't have too much of a methanol content. 
methanol will typically come off first as well. So a lot of, especially when they do moonshine, they, and like even like legally produce moonshine in like actual like commercial distilleries, they actually just, just, they just get rid of a huge portion of the original distillate because the first part that comes out is methanol and it'll blind you to drink that kind of concentration of ethanol. Um, but typically we only ever talk about ethyl alcohol. It's the only one that like applies to the everyday person. Exactly. So kind of from this point on, when we talk, when we say alcohol, you can pretty much be certain that we're referring to ethyl alcohol or ethanol, the active ingredient in your beer or wine. And then if we're talking about another alcohol, we'll, we'll, we'll probably mention it more by its name. Like again, like isopropyl alcohol and stuff like that. Yes. So ethanol, we kind of already discussed it's, uh, got two a two carbon alkyl group ethyl ch3 ch2 and then the one hydroxyl group uh there is some ethanol production that's for commercial use where you take ethene which is c2h4 which is two carbons double bonded to each other with two hydrogens on each uh carbon and then you do water in the form of steam and you just mix them together and you do a reaction and it produces ethanol this is not for consumption, though. This is, like, really, really high grade. This would be, like, yeah, if you needed to create ethanol for, you know, chemistry purposes. There's some in- industries that use ethanol for various purposes and stuff like that. But, yeah, this is what you would do to produce, like, you know, your your commercial grade ethanol that wouldn't really be used for, for consumption. Yeah, this is, like, if a lab is buying ethanol, this yeah. is what they'd buy. Yeah. Um, then, and then most of the ethanol that's used in food production is produced through fermentation. So I keep going here because like I used to work at a brewery, so I know a little bit of the background of the fermentation process. We'll start just from like fermentation as a process. What is it? What does it do? It's taking stuff and letting it hang out for a while. That's right. Ah, um, nailed it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you've ever, I'm trying to think of like, if you, what's like, a made common your example. Own yeah. Kombucha or, yeah. Or kimchi. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if you've done your own beer, right? Beer or yeah. wine, a lot of people do that. Um, yeah. Kimchi also uses fermentation. Uh, uh, if you've left something in your fridge too long, you might have unintentionally done fermentation. Yeah, what it is. yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so I was trying to think of a good example of like where, where people have accidentally fermented stuff before, but it, mm. I feel like, you know, typically you get mold growth and stuff yeah. before you're going to really deal with like that kind of fermentation, uh, necessarily. If you like left a bread starter in a weird place or would it get mold? Well, first? even a bread starter itself, if you have a sourdough starter, part of what it's doing is fermentation, ah. right? And it's that fermentation process that helps break down some of the glutens in the bread and stuff like that. So that is fermentation actually right there. There you go. Nailed it. Um, and so well. a big thing that connects that type of fermentation to the fermentation used for alcoholic beverage production is that you're using yeast. Yeast is the microorganism that drives these types of fermentation reactions. There's other organisms that will do other types of fermentation there's three major types there's lactic acid fermentation so this is the same type of lactic acid that builds up in your muscles when you work out um like certain types of workouts generally call them the anaerobic exercises where you're not uh your body is not getting enough oxygen to the muscle as quickly as it's using the oxygen to drive cellular respiration more like the strength stuff right because your aerobic exercises like those are Aerobic. I guess it's more of your aerobic system. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're thinking about it from like a fitness perspective, yes. like aerobics. Yeah. But it's more about oxygen v no oxygen. So aerobic exercise are things where your body is able, where you are able to provide enough oxygen to your muscles as you're going, and you can essentially do aerobic exercise forever. So aerobic exercise is like very low intensity jogging, like like a very particular speed. Mm-hmm. 
and below a certain point. And the big example that comes up a lot um, when you talk about cellular respiration is bike riding. Oh, I was going to say. What were you going to say? Yeah. Yoga? Yeah, well, um, depends on the type of yoga. it depends on the type of yoga, right? Like if you've ever done that yoga and your muscles really start to shake and you're holding a pose for a really long time, that's more you're in the aerobic point because the lactic acid is building up and stuff like that. So aerobic exercise, one of the ones that comes up a lot is the bike because it's right. a little bit lower impact and you can generally breathe like very easily on the bike. More that's why you can have something like the Tour de France where they ride bikes for six hours. Exactly. And then do it day after day after day because you're yeah. not, you're going to build up lactic acid because there's going to be points in an individual race where you're going to, you know, okay, you're climbing a hill. Now you're using your muscles more then you can actually provide them with the oxygen they need. So you're going to start to build up lactic acid, but then you start going downhill and you're coasting. So you're not using your muscles. So biking, it's more the action of like, sometimes on a bike, you can coast, right? Same sort of thing where it's like, sometimes you run, you keep your heart rate low and you're only running, you're keeping your pace to a certain amount. That's why you can run like a marathon or an ultra marathon, right? Because you're, you're still built at times, again, going to build up lactic acid or even over the, the long process of aerobic exercise, build up some lactic acid. But anaerobic is like when you're sprinting and your muscles are firing so fast, they're using so much energy that your body can't, right? Every time your body, your muscles need to fire, it has to do, you know, it's cellular respiration process. It has to produce ATP to drive, you know, it has to move the ions around to draw and ATP drives all of that. And ATP is driven by your glucose metabolism, with need, which needs oxygen, right? So when you're not getting enough of that oxygen, there's a, there's a, um, parallel pathway that your cells can use that produces lactic acid in the absence of oxygen to produce a little bit of energy from like cellular energy ATP from your food energy that's being broken down but at way less efficiency than normal cellular respiration it's a way that like we stay alive but it's not the it's not a good method. It's just like, it's yeah. a method from long, long, long ago when everything was just anaerobic bacteria. A hundred percent. And it's a big, big part of, uh, you know, the, an evolved fight or flight response where basically it's a way of the body saying like, you are in a situation where you need to go beyond what the basic limits of your ability to, to aspirate are like mm -hmm. how quickly you can breathe and you need to act, you need your, your muscles need to continue firing, even though you can't get them oxygen fast enough. Okay. Right. Um, the other one is so, and lactic acid fermentation is done by particular types of bacteria and stuff like that. Alcohol fermentation, the one used in wine and beer. And then there's also acetic acid fermentation, which is used to produce like vinegars, like apple cider, cider vinegar and stuff like that. Does a wine go from alcohol formation into acetic acid formation? Yeah. So, point? and typically like sometimes they'll just say like, they'll, they'll only put two categories is they'll say lactic acid and alcohol fermentation Okay. and that like, yeah. So, uh, acetic acid fermentation, it mostly, I think has to do with your starting materials or like everything's going to have slightly cert different starting materials, yeah. but you're just different pathways, different bacteria and stuff like that. And yeah, that's why like a lot of beer, uh, wine especially will kind of continue to ferment. Uh, it's got secondary fermentation in the bottle. That's why people like age their wine and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, you know, even after it's been, after it's been aged in barrels and then, uh, bottled wine continues to age, which is different from some other liquors. Yeah. Um, and that's like, but yeah, if you like, I think it's something too, where it's like, if you open a bottle of wine and leave it, it does essentially turn into acid, like acetic acid, yeah. like vinegar, right? Because it's, there's reactions happening both with the oxygen and the alcohol and like all, and the secondary fermentation that's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. the big thing about fermentation is like we were talking about with lactic acid fermentation, it's kind of good we have that discussion is because it is an 
Fermentation is an anaerobic process. It's done in an environment where oxygen is limited. So again, anaerobic meaning lacking oxygen. Um, so like aerobic, lots of oxygen, anaerobic, the an being kind of that like negative uh, prefix. So again, every cell uses cellular respiration. It is the process of taking sugars, the most simple form of sugar, gly glucose, and turning it into energy, essentially, for use in the cell, which is ATP. Uh, and it's adenosine triphosphate, right? Yep. yep. Nice. And <laughs> I remember something. Yeah. And, and typically, <laughs> uh, energy, and then typically that glucose becomes like CO2 that we breathe out right, is the big, like, waste product okay. from this cellular, when this whole cycle goes, it's all the way, and it basically breaks the sugar down into all these, like, smaller molecules throughout, and all these transitionary um, molecules, essentially, and then all that's left at the end is, like, CO2, right, uh, and then the ATP that's been generated. It's very, very complicated. These are, if you, uh, if you went through biology in school, these are, like, the, the cycles you had to learn? Yeah. Or, like, like the Krebs cycle. Yeah, so the Krebs cycle is part of the whole cellular respiration pathway. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you had to do this in school, that's how complicated this stuff is. Yeah. So typically cellular respiration, like respiration implies, is an aerobic process requiring oxygen to work to its full efficiency. Uh, anaerobic fermentation or for, well, fermentation in general is a process by which cellular respiration occurs without oxygen. Uh, so what happens is it's the, so what's happening is you're oxidizing the glucose in cellular respiration. Uh, and it basically in anaerobic respiration, you're getting partial oxidation of the glucose. And so you end up producing alcohols and acids as your end product, because basically you're not oxidizing that glucose all the way apart until you have nothing but CO2. All the carbons that were making up that chain of six sugars are now into like you know co2 basically that just you breathe out and it floats away um you have some products left over some carbon products left over that are acids and alcohols okay uh so it's not as efficient as the your regular cellular respiration so um there's another molecule that's used uh the acronym is really all that's important it's nadh plus h it's, it basically is the same function as atp it's an energy it, transfers energy it allows certain cellular processes both nadh natp and then there's another nad called nadph and all these sort of just like big molecules that are in your body that help transfer essentially you're transferring electrons around through atoms essentially it's like the stuff you need for your cells to have energy to work yeah and to do work. exactly yeah. so whether you know so they're pushing those ions up and down your channels and things like that in and out of the cell making the cell do certain things and and giving the energy the cell the energy it needs to do those things so um so fermentation or the this cellular process with anaerobic cellular respiration it's using these nadh plus h and nadh nad plus which is the kind of the non and like the other form of it, the used up form and it produces two atp per cycle for each sort of glucose that you're inputting into this process, each sugar. So without oxygen, you go through your cycle and you get two ATP. Yeah. Typical cellular respiration, and there's a number of different steps that it takes to produce all this, but all the way from, you know, molecule glucose goes in, cells break it up, CO2 comes out, produces 38 ATP. Just a little more efficient. Yeah, so yeah. this is really <laughs> just to, to show like, that this is a like an emergency process that your cells or cells in general do to produce energy in a situation where you just can't where you you know you're you're not in an ideal conditions anymore. 
And because of this, it's essentially this almost fight or flight response. The end result is, you know, of an entirely anaerobic process is dangerous for the organism. So for yeast, a solution of upwards of 14 to 18% alcohol content will begin to kill the yeast off. So this is why you never see wines that are over 20% and why you have to have certain types of distillation methods to get your spirits and stuff like that. And so we'll talk about that as part of alcohol production. Alcohol production. Yeah. So fermentation is just one part of what goes into making an alcoholic beverage. Yeah. So let's take... That's why like kimchi is not an alcoholic drink. Exactly. (laughs) And like why like kombucha technically does have an alcohol content and you like could get drunk off of it but it'd be the same as like trying to drink de-alkalized beer and get drunk you have to drink like 36 in an hour or something and it would kill you and the fluids would kill you before the alcohol even affected you yeah so i'm gonna go through the process of beer brewing uh mostly just because like it's the one that i'm most familiar with wine is not super different Mostly just the really, really early phases of like, well, you're starting with grain with beer and grapes with... Um, Squish them grapes. Yeah, with wine. And and winemaking as well, in particular. I mean, there's big beer making traditions, obviously. But winemaking as well, like there's so many winemaking traditions that some of those first steps are just different depending on the wine, the winery, the, the um, region it's from, yep. the process that they want to use, right? Like um, ice wines are really popular in Canada, kind of a thing from Canada. And it involves letting the grapes like frost on the vine before you use them oh. to make wine. So it's this whole thing, right? So it's just not as, um, I don't know as much about it. And it wasn't, I didn't feel like necessarily it was like, there's not, it's not the same sort of standard, like 10 steps kind of thing or St. Paddy's is more associated with beer anyway. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So, Davis, how do you make beer? How do you make beer? Okay, so we're going to start all the way. You're a farmer. You plant a grain. No. <laughs> you wait a few months. <laughs> you wait a few months. You hope uh, the weather holds. Yeah, Cross exactly. You, you consult your farmer's almanac. No. Okay, so assuming that the barley has already grown. So you're great. So you take fresh barley. And you, you, you know, you husk it and all this stuff or whatever. And you, uh, well, you don't husk it. You just, you, but you take the grain off of the plant, essentially. Yeah. You've got this big pile of barley, fresh barley. You soak it in some water and you allow it to begin its germination process. Because part of this is it's going to activate a particular protein called amylase in the barley that's going to help the starch separate from the grain, essentially. And that makes sense because when seeds germinate, like when they start to grow, it activates a whole process within the seed because seeds have like all the nutrients they need to survive for the first little bit. And they're waiting on a signal from the environment essentially that tells them, okay, the conditions are right for you to start trying to grow. Like water. Well, exactly, right? (laughs) So you soak the barley, you allow it to start germinating. It it activates a lot of these cellular processes, which helps with starch separation and a lot of things that you don't want in your beer. Then you interrupt that germination so that you're not getting a bunch of plants, essentially, by drying and kilning, or or kilning, depending on the word you want to use, uh, the barley at about 80 degrees Celsius. And a kiln is a, it's like the sort of it's oven like that they use for, for pottery. Yeah. Any, like, clay pieces that you have, any fired pieces, they've gone through a kiln. It's like a, yeah. a drying process. Yeah. But yeah, it's like a dry, really dry heat oven. Yeah. Now, a pottery kiln is going to get many hundreds of degrees Celsius. Yeah. Because it yeah. has to, basically, you're trying to evaporate out all of the water that's left in your clay in a very 
controlled process to prevent cracking and stuff like that. Yeah, but if yeah. you put these in that sort of kiln, it would be... You, you, would, you would just, just start a fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at the end of this process, after you've dried and kilned the, the, uh, the barley, it will have a slightly sweet taste to it. Uh, and these, and this is what we call like the malt sugars have sort of, as the starch has been separated and stuff like that, um, that's part of what's come out is the malt sugars. And this is part of what's going to feed the yeast later on, right? Fermentation, ultimately sugars and yeast. Those are your big ingredients, right? For alcohol fermentation. Yes. Okay. So then you're going to take this grain and you're going to mill it much like you would mill, you know, grain into flour. Grind it up. You're going to grind it up and it becomes what we call grist. And it, grist has a flour-like consistency, but there's different grades of grist, right? Same thing, you can get your double zero flour, which is really useful for certain types of breads. That's really, really, really hyper-fine, done with a zero zero blade, essentially, is where the number comes from. And you have your coarse grains as well, right? All the way on the other side, like your semolina flours and stuff like that. I feel like sugar might be a more, an example people can see better. Because like the difference between like icing sugar and then like right. cane yeah. sugar. Ex exactly the same sort of thing. Different grades of coarseness yeah. for, you know, when you're breaking down a product, right? Uh, so you turn it into a grist partly because it dissolves better in water, which is another principal ingredient for beer. Beer really only has like four ingredients, one of them being water. Um... You know, I don't know that beer cans very often have the ingredients on them, but if they do, the first ingredient is always water. I think dealkalized beer does because mm. it's a grocery store product, so it needs a, um, a nutrition facts label. Yeah. And the first ingredient is water because yeah. it's like the like ninety percent of what you're drinking is just water. Yep. Uh, so then you so then we go to the process uh, called mashing, where you're now going to mix the malt into the water. And this is going to, again, release more of the starch from the grist. So these are the sugars, the proteins, and then what we call tannins are released. So sometimes with wine drinkers, you talk about tannins. Or tea. Tea has yeah. lots of tannins. Yeah. We talked a little bit about tannins in one of the plant podcasts, I think. I was saying something about, like, terpenes and stuff like that are all C5H5. Uh, it's like this building block. A lot of tannins are made. Tannins, again, it's just a group of chemicals that have a particular structure that plants typically make. Then, and so these things are kind of released from the grist, they get into the water, and what you're now left with after mashing is a what's called a malt extract. There's a few like middle steps, so one of them is called laudering, and again, all the steps in beer making kind of have special names from the traditions that when these uh, techniques were developed and things like yeah, that. Yeah, they all look like really old-timey words. And they are all <laughs> old-timey words for all intents and purposes, yeah. and a lot of like the brewing legacy, right, doesn't even come from beer of antiquity like the original beer and stuff that was made it really comes from a you know renaissance of beer making and like particularly documented beer making in kind of um the late middle ages into like the enlightenment period and the renaissance and stuff like that when they started to write down more of this stuff and like share you know because used to be like you know um the monks would make beer but it would be kind of like a bit of a secret or whatever it, to the point which there's still monk run breweries today oh. that have very like specialty batches and stuff like that. You can only get in certain places. Interesting. Now, very cool. So you, <laughs> now what you do is you, you take, you call you do what's called laudering. So you want to separate the wort from the solid material. So you take your malt extract and you put it into a special container and you allow the spent husks of barley. Like at this point, it's everything together, right? It's this yeah. big mashup of grist and water and stuff. And you allow the spent husks, the leftover grist to settle to the bottom and you pour the wort off the top. Wort, W-O-R-T. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the spent material is often used as cattle fodder. 
So the beer making process itself, actually, um, even the factory I worked in at the time, it was something like 90% plus of the materials are recycled. I mean, obviously, it's not really counting like the water consumption that actually like the water that ends up getting used and in the final product, stuff like that. But all the aluminum, all the cardboard that you use, right? Because that was, that was more on the packaging side. But the grains, you, can, you would sell these grains to farms and they would use it to feed their cattle to spend um, you know, grist and stuff like that. You would sell, we would even sell the waste beer because other companies would distill it and turn it into antifreeze oh. and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> um, there, it got to a point where there was even a company. Um, one of the things we had at the factory was a bottle washer because we did reuse bottles and a lot of people, I'm sure you've seen it at a party. A lot of people that smoke will ash into their beer or yeah. they'll put their cigarette butts into the beer. So when you bottle wash them, there's like uh, cigarette butts that come out just like, endlessly like buckets and buckets of cigarette yeah. butts that come out of these machines and we even got to a point where there was a company that would buy the spent cigarette butts from us because they would they would um pulp out the paper they would just sort of wash the paper away dissolve it and then they would they could break down the fiber and use it for fiberglass insulation or i don't know what they were using it for exactly but there's it just got it's to a plastic yeah. right so i think yeah i think it's yeah fiberglass or something it's like uh this isn't this isn't my third talk plastic videos i think it's cellulose oh. acetate that makes Something sense. Like that? that makes yeah. a lot of sense. So yeah, exactly. So again, it's just this, you know, there's lots of opportunities for recycling in the brewing process. Which makes sense because it's like, it's such a huge industry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think there was a show on Netflix I watched where people started making dog biscuits out of, I, I'm guessing it's the... Yeah. Well, there's like a popular... Spent, spent husk material. Yeah. Well, there's a popular brewery here in Calgary called Cold Garden where they don't really serve food, but one of the things, and actually a lot of the microbreweries here have started to do this, is they'll use their spent grains to make bread products that oh. they'll then sell in the stores and stuff like that. Especially a lot of these microbreweries now also have like a chef, right, that will run the tap, like that will put a menu together for the tap room some of those items will sometimes then use the spent grains from the brewing process because you're producing all this stuff anyway. Yeah. And it gives you that little bit of an extra like, oh, it's, you know, it's specialty. It's homemade because we're, it's all of our own product, essentially. Very cool. Yeah. So now you've got your wort separated from the solid material and we go into wort bo boiling. Uh, so this point is when the one of the other major ingredients of uh, beer is added. Um, one that we're probably pretty familiar with, the hops. So hops are, oh. Are they the thing that allows it to dunk? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I thought it and I was like, don't say it, Sarah. Oh, and man. then Davis paused and my brain was like, I can't yeah. do it. So uh, I, I used to remember what type of plant a hops what a hop was. The hop plant is a thing. Uh, and now I can't recall, unfortunately. They're really cool looking. They have a beautiful look. Um, they almost look like, uh, they almost look like Brussels sprouts. Uh, they're part of the, the hop plant Humulus lupulus, which is a member of the Cannabaceae family, which is a relative of, is that a relative of cannabis? I don't think so. I think canna comes up a lot as a... Okay. But yeah, so it's a plant. It's like a little flower, essentially. I think essentially. the plant is called hops. It's just... Yeah, yeah, hops. yeah. 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 And then hops is sort of like the fruit part that comes off. But it, the, yeah. essentially they do kind of look like little Brussels sprouts, I always found. 
Okay. I mean, it's typically not the way that you get them when you brew. They do look like little Brussels sprouts. I'm looking at images now. Yeah. Everyone go Google hops. Yeah. So, um, they're, you know, little green le leafy buds, essentially. Uh, a lot of breweries will actually um, basically use hops that have been, many, like, processed already. So, they're, like, into pellets and stuff like that. They look like a mix between Brussels sprouts and pine cones. Yeah. And part of this is because, yeah, pine cones is a really good analogy as well. Because they kind of have that, like, um, the they little, like, scales. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so hops typically only grow in a handful of regions. They, they're not very shelf-stable hops. Uh, so that's why a lot of places, a lot of breweries don't use fresh hops. They use processed hops that are essentially, they're like pushed down into a pellet. Essentially, they like mill them again and then they put them into little capsules and stuff. Uh, and then you just throw them into your... So when you're boiling the wort, you add the hops. This is what gives the beer some of its taste. Uh, and so more hops equals more bitter beer. So this is why some people will say, I don't really like hoppy beer because they don't like beers that have tons and tons of hops and are bitter. So as you're boiling the wort, this is going to deactivate some of the enzymes that are left over in this water. You know, all the proteins and stuff that are left over from the, uh, from the grain that might want to do certain things in the solution. So you're going to deactivate them. Uh, you boil some of the water out. Uh, and the proteins and tannins separate into what's called like a trub material. So I think it's in this boiling process, they kind of start to like glom up together and they call it the trub. I have no idea where some of these words come from. This is like, because proteins denature when you get them too hot, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, so they unfold. They unfold. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so then you get to wort clarification. So you use a special whirlpool. There's actually a few different methods of wort clarification. Whirlpool is only one of them. Uh, basically to separate out the trub, the solid material that's left over. So you use a whirlpool because what happens is you spin it around and around in that whirlpool vortex, the solid material will build up in the center and will yeah. build up like a big cone. And then what you can do is you can, uh, they call it um, uh, tapping. Like, you know, you sit on when you tap a, um, like a barrel, right? You, you put a faucet in the side of it, essentially a spigot and it pours out the side. Yeah. That's like, so it's the same thing that you do here. It's like, so now you have all the solid material in the center of this big vessel and then you just tap out the side. So you're just siphoning the water off as the whirlpool, the flute, the liquid off. And then all that solid material is just going to stay in the center. Smart way to do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you're going to cool that clear wort down to about 10 to 20 degrees Celsius. It's at this point that you're going to move it into your fermentation vessels and you're going to add yeast to the wort in these containers. So some of these fermentation vessels are these big, huge towers. They're generally vertical um, towers. And you're going to feed, and there's different strains of yeast that are used for different beers. So there's ale yeasts, there's uh, lager yeasts and stuff like that, uh, pilsner yeasts, all sorts of stuff. And different yeasts will produce, essentially, will give different beers different characteristics. And then different yeasts as well will be fed into your fermenter differently. So some of them will be fed in through the bottom where they're going to sink to eventually, but that's where fermentation is going to occur in the bottom of this big vessel. Some are going to be fed onto the top and then they're going to be allowed to settle out as fermentation occurs. And this is going to create different characteristics for different beers. This is why there are so many different types of beer. It, well, exactly, right? <laughs> and so what's happening in this fermentation process is there's all this wort sugar in the wort and it's going to be consumed by the yeast as um as basically just all sits in this giant tub essentially this big fermenter and you know over time it's just going you're going to monitor it over a couple of weeks 
and you're gonna monitor the alcohol content as that starts to come up. So there's lots of different things you can monitor during the fermentation process. So there's other things that are gonna be produced um, as a byproduct of the fermentation process. So think like diacetyls, methanol content, things like that. Some things you don't really want in the beer, uh, but they're indicative of how the fermentation process is going. So diacetyls in particular are more measure, like allow you to kind of measure how your yeast is doing. And there's usually for particular brews uh, and fermentation sort of stages, there's a point where the diacetyl will start to kind of come down. And so then you basically just monitor all these things to know when your fermentation is done. Uh, a lot of home brewers, what you monitor, because you don't have like the uh, sophisticated equipment to like run really uh, sophisticated tests on it and measure like actual individual um, things like uh, molecules, you will do the specific gravity. So you'll basically monitor how dense your liquid is oh. and that will give you, and uh, when that starts to change or gets to below a certain point, that's an indication that your fermentation is sort of completed. Okay. So then you're going to move out of the fermentation. You're going to stop fermentation. So you're going to pour the yeast off and you're going to cold store it and you're going to move it into again, another big vessel and you're going to uh, store it at about one to two degrees Celsius from anywhere from three weeks to three months, depending on the beer. Some beers as well will get uh, certain things may have things added in the storage process. So some of them get what we used to call chipped where it'd be like special types of wood chips that you put in with the beer oh. to give it some flavor and stuff like, like that. Smoky flavor. Yeah, exactly. So I think, uh, so Budweiser, for example, has a special aging process that it's run through that involves some extra things that are put into it and it's held for a certain number of days. And it's a bit, because Budweiser is a huge brand, it's a very, very, very standardized process. Uh, and it's monitored very closely by those brewers. In the aging or storage, uh, you've got secondary fermentation taking place. So there's still going to be some yeast left over. And this is also going to give some t more time for the proteins and the tannins, all these things that are left over, you know, uh, to sink to the bottom. And this is when the beer starts to get its color, a characteristic color. Um, you know, again, like most beers have a very specific color that is associated with the brand. It becomes very important one for brand recognition. And it's just a way to distinguish between different types of brews, right? Yeah. You got your obvious examples like Guinness is pitch black. And then you got, you know, really light beers like lagers and stuff like that. Or like Budweiser, for example. Again, very sort of um, <laughs> specific color. Very, very light. Yeah, exactly. Does the length of time it's storing or aging have to do with the color? Or is it more like the yeast and all the other stuff? Yeah, it's more everything that goes into it beforehand. So okay. it's the grist you're using. It's the uh, the hops that you've put in with it. Some beers will get a coloring as well, like we'll have a coloring added to it, but it's mostly everything that happens kind of beforehand. Then then the color, the other aspect that plays into color, more so into the turbidity, how clear it is or, or non-clear, is like the filtering process, which yeah. is next, or how much you allow certain things to settle out. Right. Yeah. Does, does rice beer tend to be lighter because you're starting with rice? I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I think it would really depend on, um, you know, not all rice is like a plain white grain yeah. either. Um, I think it depends on the type of rice you're using, the other things that are on it. Because, again, you're probably not using like the husked rice grain necessarily. I, I'm not too familiar with yeah. it. Um, and you may still be adding hops that are going to give it particular certain colors. And you may they may even be adding a coloration because they oh. want to play to people's perceptions of what a beer is supposed of to look course. like. Of course. Not a process that I'm as familiar with, unfortunately. 
Uh, so now after aging takes place, you're gonna filter the beer. Some beers are gonna remain unfiltered. Uh, even the filtered beers are generally run through like a coarse filter to take out certain things, right? Take out like heavy sediment. Yeah, heavy sediment. But some beers, they want um, basically what is the yeasts, the dead cells um, in the beer that create that cloudiness mm. and stuff like that. I remember mm. I started drinking uh, more unfiltered beer after I went, I went on like a brewery tour somewhere in Ontario. Mm-hmm. My dad was doing an ultra marathon and, and my mom and I were like, oh, we have some hours to kill. So we went to a brewery and uh, they were talking about how like the filter that's used is actually, it's like an animal product or like it had animal product in it or something. Mm. And so I was like, oh, well, I guess because I'm a vegetarian. So I was like, how do I? Hmm. <laughs> mm. So yeah, so many are unfiltered. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of that is like using animal product is because like a steel filter is going to give, t- like any, anytime you're using metal, anything, it's going to give taste. Yeah. Right. And these are all processes like that have been going on for hundreds of, yeah. of years. Right. Yeah. So you're, well, that's, yeah. you kind of go into the, like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so some are going to be unfiltered. A lot are filtered. Uh, some are only filtered to a certain degree, all that stuff. Uh, fun fact as well, like the, the head, the foam that forms on your beer, that's like the draw, that's like the dead yeast cells, like the, the husks of the cells is part of what gives it that characteristic. Oh, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, yeah, exactly. It's just some uh, of that that's left over and stuff like that. So think about that next time you see a nice head, mm-hmm. of, head on the beer. Yeah. Cause it's like, that's what allows those bubbles to form that way. And so mm-hmm. make that foam. Uh, so, and now you're going to get to the the final actual characteristic color of a beer after it's been filtered. Again, some of them are going to be intentionally cloudy. Some of them are supposed to be as clear as possible that you're supposed to see right through. Uh, then you go to your final stage, which is filling, which is basically, you're just going to bottle or can the beer. You use negative, use counter pressure to prevent the CO2 loss. So the way it kind of looks is like you're essentially filling them from like, you're kind of pouring it in and lifting the filler out as it fills up. Yeah. So it doesn't like hit and you lose all the bubbles. Yeah, exactly. And you're you're evacuating the, the, um, the bottle, the vessel essentially. Is that what makes like a, like, if you open up a bottle? Well, that's partly because of the carbonation too, right? (laughs) But yeah, you're going to essentially push a gas in to push all the other gas out and then fill it in a way that's going to push all the gas out of the vessel. And there's just like a number of different reasons you do that. Both also because like for sanitation reasons and stuff like that is like you want to make sure that your bottles are clear and all this stuff. So a number of different, it's quite the process. If you've ever seen one of these fillers, if you do a brewery tour, like some of these, you know, you do it a microbrewery. Sometimes it doesn't like belie how insane some of these machines get. Yeah. Um, but you do, you go to a factory and like even like the, the, the Labatt factory that I used to work at in London, Ontario, they would do tours and stuff like that. But some of these fillers are like the size of, size of some people's apartments, essentially. Like yeah. it's like, you know, a footprint of 500 square feet or whatever <laughs> um, with a whole enclosure. Because right? it's a bit, you basically enclose it in plexiglass so that it's safe. Um, and because there's fluids flying everywhere and all sorts of stuff, they're very complex machines. But for example, the one brewery in Montreal, which is a Labatt brewery is also owned by Budweiser. They have a can machine that can produce, I believe it's, it can fill 3000 cans per minute. If I remember my numbers correctly. What? And we had one that would do 300. So you can imagine how fast, and it's spinning. It's this big wheel that the cans kind of come down a big sluice gate. They kind of roll in. Then they get put onto this thing. They get like kind of suction cupped into the fillers. And then they go, they whip around and then they shoot them out. They, you know, they attach the top, the tab to the can. And then they shoot them out the other end and they go down a big uh, conveyor belt. Yeah. 
Uh, one thing I forgot to kind of include with this, a lot of beers are pasteurized. Most right. beer that you drink, uh, your conventional beers, there's some like artisan beers that don't get pasteurized, but most beers are pasteurized. So they're run through a big, basically a hot water bath. It's like a big shower. Um, it looks like an automatic car wash almost. Uh, <laughs> and you run them through that where the temperature is, I think it's between 40, I think it's around 40 to 60 degrees for beer. Different pasteurization processes use different temperatures. And you, I think you want to do it for under 45 minutes. Uh, there's like a mathematical function that creates a unit called, it's called a pasteurization unit. And you have to hit a certain mark to help the sh uh, shelf stability of the beer. And that just like kills anything alive left in, right? Like any yeah. bacteria or something. Yeah, Because like exactly. milk goes through pasteurization as well. Exactly. So yeah, that's why like you can drink curdled milk. It won't make you, it, it might be gross. And our <laughs> perception of what milk should be will make us sick from it. But milk itself, even curdled milk, is safe to eat or drink because <laughs> it's pasteurized. So the microbes that are going to make you sick are dead already, essentially. I mean, unless you've like left it out in the open air and it's gotten a whole bunch of new microbes. But I'm not, I'm not encouraging you to drink curdled milk. I'm just saying because of the pasteurization project pr process, it's a lot safer than people sort of think it is. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> Excellent. So that's beer. There's one other little process that we have to talk about. Um, so beer, right, you ferment it. And then what you what you ferment is essentially like what you get. Like that's the alcohol percentage you get. There's some ways of fine tuning it. That's why you can get this standard like 5% because you're essentially like centrifuging off some of the alcohol that you don't need or you're diluting it. It's all sorts of different steps like to fine tune it. But it'd also be like why you have the different kind of standard alcohol contents on different countries. Like US beer is notoriously lighter in terms mm -hmm. of alcohol content compared to like German beer yeah. or Canadian beer. And some of that too can have to do with the, with the way that certain standards are set in terms of quality. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's, it's obviously impossible to get it 5% on the dot every time. So there's generally a window in which you can be in both within the company policy and then from a legal marketing perspective, oh, right? Sense. Cause you can't produce Budweiser and say, have a batch of Budweiser and have it come out at five and five and fit you know 5.5 percent alcohol content and then sell it under the same rules as the rules start to change a little bit because you're essentially uh, more so especially if it's under a certain yeah, amount well, under or over pr presents different problems right yeah. if it's over then people can't control their alcohol consumption the same way so you might someone might know well i can have two budweiser's before um an hour before i drive and i'll blow under the legal limit and i won't be inebriated but if that if those two budweiser's have you know, a half percentage alcohol more in each of them, highly unlikely that like, I don't think the numbers all add up, but then you could potentially, yeah, you could create a situation where someone has drank an amount that they're used to having drunk, but they're actually consuming more alcohol. Yeah. They like, they didn't consent to drinking that percentage. Exactly. Whereas if it's under, then you've essentially lied to the customer and you've charged them for something that they're not actually getting. Ripping them off. So there's a whole bunch of different rules about it. Uh, but you know, a lot of the alcohols that we enjoy and in particular in the last 20 years, with the sort of with health consciousness increasing and people especially looking at beer and wine as these very high carb high sugar you know like high calorie options high ca thank you high calorie <laughs> options a lot of people move to spirits even and though they also have high calorie counts yes many it's of them just, it's many a smaller volume but it's a high calorie count and well that's the big <laughs> difference right you know two like the volume of three shots of tequila versus three beers even though an ounce shot of tequila and one 355 millimeter, a millimeter, milliliter <laughs> beer are the same. It's called a standard unit of alcohol. Yeah. The breakdown is the same because of the percentages. 
you know, you're drinking, you're getting a lot less of the other stuff, the sugars, the carbs that you have in the beer than you would in like the tequila or whatever you're shooting, right? Unless you're mixing your spirit with something. Yeah. If you mix your spirit with like juice or pop. Yeah. Then you're in a whole (laughs) other ballpark. But I sort of meant like the pure. Yeah. Yeah. Just a shot. And that's why a lot of times why people have moved towards spirits. Uh, but to get a spirit up to those alcohol percentages that we're used to, like 35 40%. The things you said would kill the yeast, Davis. Exactly. You have to distill it. So you have to do, run it through a separate process. So take whiskey, for example. Right, Whiskey essentially starts from the exact same place as beer. Typically, you don't use hops, but you do all the same malting process all the way to making a wort. You boil it, and you start to ferment it. And essentially, what you have at that end point is essentially a rough beer. It's the same process. It's And you might be using specific yeasts for whiskey and things like that. And whiskey, again, huge tradition in whiskey and scotch yeah. making, down to the point where the source of your water is important. It's also important for beer. Um, anything where, you know, water is 90% of the con. <laughs> you know, same thing with coffee. Um, people don't think about it all the time, but the quality of the water is really what will dictate the quality of a coffee. And if you're using, like, spring water or really, really filtered water to make your coffee, it will taste better than, you know, the hard water that we get from our taps here in Calgary and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. a little science experiment you can do at home if you have like a filter. Exactly. So basically what you have to do is you have to distill this liquid. So you have this big tub of liquid that maybe is like 8% alcohol and you want to get it into the 35-40% region. So you need to get rid of some of that water and collect only the alcohol. And so we talked a little bit about how um alcohol we at the time we said it has higher boiling point compared to other hydrocarbons but compared to water it has a lower boiling point exactly so and and this is again because water has so much hydrogen bonding and it just really wants to stick together you're going to have a little bit less of that hydrogen bonding there's not as many hydrogens that are available for hydrogen bonding in a thing of ethyl between the molecules of ethyl alcohol Water has a, it's called a high heat capacity, yep. high, high specific heat capacity, meaning it takes a lot of energy to transform the temperature of water up like yep. one degree. Whereas with our alcohols, they would be lower. Exactly. So with alcohol, so what, what you're doing with distilling is you're essentially boiling your big pot, you're heating it up and you are using like, you, you ever see a, a still, which is the thing that they do distilling in. And it often has a big coiled tube on one side you ever see that in a in distillation process yeah so this is true for distillation of all types yeah, distillation is just a process mm. i was thinking more like the chemistry one you see of like it'll like the mad scientist has a beaker and then there's like a a glass tube it's a twirly tube and then it goes into yep. another smaller beaker and that is again that's a distillation process some yeah. of those will be water cooled where it's actually a tube inside of another tube where you're pumping water through right uh and the reason that you do this is you're increasing the cross-sectional area that the the steam or whatever liquid you have has to go through and and you've got this compressed space and it's going to help force that lower boiling point liquid into a back or gas back down into a liquid. Yeah. And then you're gonna siphon it off essentially. So you boil this you boil this big pot. Not the, enough to boil the water. Well you are you are essentially like boiling the water. And then what you're doing is you're just allowing the steam to come off and you're collecting just, you know, not just the ethanol, but you're still getting all this other, some water content to come through with it. And you're, you're distilling off the more concentrated alcohol portion of the liquid. And then one of the things that comes along with it is what we call the congeners. So these are the things that give your spirits their taste. 
So there are other esters, tannins, the methanols, fusel alcohols, so just other structure alcohols that are in your fermented liquid, and they're going to give flavor profile to your finished whiskey or other spirit. And what where a lot of the tradition and skill um, that comes into distilling comes from is making is is fine-tuning that process, the temperatures you're using, what you're boiling off, how much you're collecting, the process that by which you're collecting it to really dial in all those congeners and creating like a very characteristic flavor. And the congeners have an effect actually on uh, hangover amount that happens. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I always forget that I... part. Yeah. So different, some congeners can really, can certain liquors and stuff like that will really hit you hard. Yeah. So the, the congeners in this one study that I saw, it seemed to be like, the the color of the alcohol yeah. had an effect, right? So like your red wines, your brandies at the highest level, and then your white wines, whiskeys, and lagers had like a medium amount, and then rum had a lower amount, and then there was like none in vodka and gin. Mm -hmm. But the amount of con, how do you? Say? I said I was was saying it differently in my head. Say it again. Con I said congener, but I didn't okay. really look up a pronunciation, so. Okay, my I head said congener, but who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah. So drinks with more. Congeners, congeners may make hangovers worse. Mm. Fun fact. Interesting. So, uh, so you, so there's two major methods of distillation. There's what's called alembic distillation, which is the ancient distillation methods. The first one that was come up with uh, gets its name from the kettle, the shape, uh, an alembic shape, where it's like um, big, wide pot tapers up to a very small peak, and then it kind of has that little spout that comes off. Okay. Almost looks like a little. Um, like a little kind of straw coming out the side or whatever. So that's an alembic um, kettle, essentially. And basically, it's just you boil, you, you pour your water, you pour your solution in, you boil it, um, and then you the vapor cools in the tubes and the distilled liquid is collected. Uh, and you have to, one of the big disadvantages of this method is you have to wash each of those kettles after every use. Right. But it's the one that we invented first. Right, pretty yeah. straightforward. Don't, you don't usually uh, create the most efficient thing first. No. So. Well, and even like the alembic, like this distillation method is still what will be used for certain types of liquors because you want one tradition and two, you want some of the inefficiencies that are going to bring some of those congeners over yeah. to give you particular flavors. There's another type which is called column distillation, which uses in some places multiple story columns. That's wild. And is invented in the 19th century. And this is much more efficient. It's faster. There's no washing involved. And what you do is you inject the wort into one of these columns, and then you have steam rising in the column to meet it. And the steam, as it flows by through this liquid, essentially, is going to strip off some of the alcohol, right? This really hot steam, some of the alcohol as it passes by, it's going to vaporize it, and it's going to strip away some of that and some of your congeners. Again, your congeners are your not are your non-polar, or not, not even non-polar, they're other organic chemicals that also have lower boiling points than water. So they're going to come off with some of this as well. And one of the advantages of column distillation is that you can control the temperature of the steam. Right. So you can have precisely controlled steam temperatures to drive the congener extraction that you want and do it very uniformly across the entire sample. And you can also have multiple columns. So you can do the distillation multiple times, essentially. Um, and so some 
uh, especially, so this is typically column distillation is typically used a little bit more for some of those clear liquors. So things like vodka, um, gin is a special case. We'll kind of talk about gin in, in a little bit, but, um, vodka in particular, right? It's very neutral flavored. It's very clear. And some really high end vodkas will talk about how many times they were distilled. Yeah. And yeah. so basically that's like how many columns they were run through. That's another thing of hangover land. Some people say that the top shelf liquors as it were the the high really high quality expensive ones cause fewer or like less bad hangovers compared to cheaper yeah. liquors because of this like extra distillation yep interesting so there's obviously a huge list of different types of alcohols um the, these are the principally the ways that we get them so obviously wine and beer are kind of done through that principal fermentation beer barley hops yeast water main ingredients wine grapes yeast and water Vodka, often we associate vodka with coming from potatoes. Yeah. can also be done with grains or corn. Yeah. So there's a very famous vodka in North America called Tito's, which is done with corn. And a lot of people think, again, this is probably because of different congeners that potatoes produce versus the grains or corn. But one of the things that Tito's at some like beer festivals and stuff will really like to market themselves as is like the no hangover vodka. Mm. Because the, and the anecdotally, I've heard people say this too, where it's like, well, they drink Tito's they don't get as severe a hangover and but and so tito's is made with corn uh whiskey very similar to beer it's barley and water big part of what gives whiskey its flavor is the aging in barrels yeah so barrels of specific types of wood yeah. rather than just big steel containers the more expensive the whiskey is often like this was aged longer it, yeah. it, exactly right longer for secondary fermentation to go on and release some of these other flavors and things into the beer right yeah. produce different tannins those sorts of things scotch is whiskey but it's made in scotland comes from particular regions um and different regions in scotland will have different um, characteristic scotches a big part of what makes scotch different from whiskey is the scottish water is very soft um oh. so it ha means it doesn't have as much calcium and stuff in it and a lot another some uh scotch has sometimes they call it a peatiness to it so obviously scotland's known for some of its peat bogs peat p-e-a-t uh, and what they'll sometimes use is when they're drying the malt is they'll add peat to the kiln. Oh. And so the peat will produce like a smokiness into the malt and give it some flavor. Neat. Yeah. Uh, just talk quickly on scotch. Sometimes we talk about a single malt or things like that. Yeah. That is a, a single malt is just a whiskey that is produced at a single distillery. using Usually using a single type of malted grain, but it might be a mixture of grains, but it's like, it's sort of the same batch, different batches, but it's like the same recipe. So you might have, you might, you know, brew it 10 different times and then mix them all together, but that's still going to be a single malt because it comes from a single distillery. Okay. That's where like single malt comes from. Yeah. Uh, gin is an interesting case because it is a vodka base. Basically all gin starts as vodka. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> And you run vodka through basically another still, another distillation process with special botanicals present. So the big one, uh, and it's something even like in Europe, there's a standard of like this, the juniper, juniper, so juniper berries is the big one for gin, where the juniper flavor has to be like 40% of the overall profile or something has to be the, oh. the majority of the botanical flavor in a gin has to be juniper berry for it to be 
gin okay. because you can make other botanical liquors that have different like liqueurs that have different names but then you can also make gin with other botanicals in it in addition to juniper berries to give it different flavors if you want to uh really if you don't believe us that it's juniper and gin uh if you live in an area that has juniper bushes when they start to like fruit and they get their little berries mm-hmm. they're little blue they like little blue yeah. berries that are on them very um, tiny yeah you like pick one off and you crush it and smell it it will smell like gin yeah because gin smells like juniper yeah exactly uh some of the um like american or well actually bourbon does actually come from a region in france it comes from the french bourbon dynasty uh so bourbon is is basically like a whiskey made with corn uh, it's your starting ingredient. Tequila is agave, blue agave specifically. This is like one of the tequila yeah. has some very specific rules about what is and isn't tequila and what's mezcal or reposado and stuff like that. Uh, mezcal is also done with agave, but it's different in the distillation process. So they use um, smoked agave hearts and stems, which are crushed and fermented and distilled. Whereas uh, tequila will cook or steam the agave like leaves yeah. before fermentation and distillation. Uh, rum is made with molasses or sugarcane. Uh, rye, if you believe it or not, starts with rye. This ah. is a type of grain. But you can also have like rye whiskeys and stuff. So it would just be like yeah. a combination of the different malts. Exactly. Right. So you might have some rye or you might even have rye and barley mixed right. together into a malt and then turn into a rye whiskey yeah. and stuff like that. I think sometimes as well, they may just say rye whiskey because it's yeah. the whiskey process, but done with rye. Oh. But I'd have to double check. Um, and then brandy is essentially, it is a fermented fruit juice and the original, the, the kind of original brandy is more common in brandy. It's grapes as yeah. the fruit juice base. So brandy is really just a distilled wine, yeah. which is why it's been around for so long. And cognac is just a regional brandy from the cognac region. Very cool. Yeah. So now you know where all your drinks, what they are, where some yeah. of them came from and how they're made kind of. Yeah. So that's alcohol. But what happens, Sarah, when we drink alcohol? We get inebriated. We get drunk. Yep, we feel it. Yeah. Um, So this is generally measured with blood alcohol content. Uh, And this, uh, so there's a bunch of different numbers that can come from this. But like you're, if you are at 0.25% to 0.39% blood alcohol content, you have alcohol poisoning. So that's... So that's 0.25% of your blood yes. is alcohol. Yeah. Which... So think of how little that is of all of your blood. <laughs> this is a potent thing. Remember we Davis said, like, you can take the beer byproducts and make antifreeze? Yeah. Yeah. So this is like, but you always hear people, especially people who don't, like, if some people who don't drink who are, like, very vocal about it, be like, alcohol is poison. They're not wrong. Yeah. <laughs> alcohol is poison. <laughs> so you can get alcohol poisoning at these low levels. Um, and if you get upwards of 0.4% blood alcohol content, uh, you can end up in a coma and possibly dead mm-hmm. from that level. I mean, technically everything is a poison. A poison yes. is really just a medicine or something that, or a substance that's been given to you in too much volume. That's why Al- when they study certain drugs, they do an LD50, the, uh, <laughs> the lowest dose under which 50% of participants, usually mice, die. Yes. Uh, but alcohol is just a bit more of a potent poison yeah. than a lot of them. Yeah. Um, so with with Davis was saying that you have your standard units and uh, a standard unit. So for beer, it's a 12 ounces or like your one regular can of beer of 5% beer. Um, this So this is not a pint. A pint is bigger. 
So like a US pint is 16 ounces. This is 473 milliliters. This is a tall boy. Mm-hmm. So a tall boy can. Uh, and then there's the imperial pint. That's your 20 ounce pint. Uh, 591 milliliters. Mm-hmm. But those pints are not standard measurements. So 12 ounces. One can is your standard drink. So if someone says, like, you can have one, as we talk about this, like, you can have one standard drink a week. That's one can of beer. Yeah. One normal size can of beer. One normal size, yeah. Yeah. Um, And then there's, for wine, your standard drink is five ounces, so 142 milliliters of 12% wine. And for your spirits, you're at 1.5 ounces. Is that a shot? A shot's usually about one ounce. It's like a shot and a half. Um, of 80 proof, so 40% alcohol content of your spirits. And your body can process about one standard drink per hour. And this does... Good rule of thumb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is dependent on your uh, your weight and your gender, actually. Mm-hmm. So size and gender, do they matter in alcohol consumption and inebriation? Yes. Yes, they do. Solidly, yes. Very much so. <laughs> so size, yes, because alcohol... it. It goes into the parts of our bodies that are water. And bigger people, makes sense, have more water in their bodies. So Davis is a much taller human than I am. So if we drank the same amount, it would affect me a lot faster than it would affect Davis because I'm a lot smaller, so I have a lot less water. Mm -hmm. And so water basically dilutes the alcohol in our bodies and in our blood. Less water, more drunk. And gender, yes, because women have a different body composition. Typically, women have a higher fat content compared to men. And... Uh, thereby having less water in the same body size compared to a man of the same body size. So even if I was with a guy the same size as me, they would or they would likely be able to handle drink a little better than I could based on that water content. Mm-hmm. Although part of what happens there too is that people with extremely low body fat percentages, both men and women, will tend to get drunk much faster, uh, right? Like people that have really like high muscle um, tone and stuff like that, it, like... I came across the opposite that oh, really? because there's more water in muscle than fat, oh. having more muscle means more water, which could translate to better resistance to inebriation. All right, we'll go with yours. I feel like anecdotally, I've heard people that get like super, super into bodybuilding and stuff like that, that they tend to get drunk very quickly. Hmm. But maybe I'm, maybe I'm misattributing that. And super into bodybuilding, that's like a really yeah, that's it, a, right? quite an extreme. Yeah. Very true, very so. true. And there might be other stuff going on too, you know. And taking some other substances, maybe. <laughs> Very potentially. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so your drinks per hour, typically body can process one standard drink per hour, but it really depends based on if you're male, if you're female, if you're big, if you're little, all these sorts of things. Uh, and then there is, as we all know, with St. Patty's coming up, excessive drinking is a real part of our culture. And so binge drinking, you might have heard this term, but it actually has a definition. It's all about the number of drinks during a single occasion. And these numbers are a little different depending on the country you're looking at. These ones are from the States, I believe. So four or more drinks for women or five or more drinks for men in a single occasion is considered binge drinking. So something that probably a lot of us have done uh, from CAMH, which is a mental health, uh, a big mental health clinic in uh, Ontario. They did surveys that said one-fifth of Ontario students in grades 7 to 12 report binge drinking at least once in the past month. Uh, Almost one in three Canadians between 20 and 34 years old report binge drinking 12 or more times in the past year. And nearly one in five Canadians between 35 and 44 reports binge drinking at the same rate. So binge drinking, a thing a lot of people are doing. 
Yeah. Fairly frequently. And then heavy drinking is uh, more about the number of drinks per week, separate from binge drinking. So binge drinking, a lot in one occasion. Heavy drinking is a number of drinks per week. So for women, it's eight or more. And for men, it's 15 or more. And if you are doing moderate drinking, which is, you know, <laughs> healthier, uh, for women, it's one drink a day or less. And for men, it's two drinks a day or less. And remember, this is standard drink units. I always think of it like the people who have a... Uh, there's like those wine glasses that can fit a whole bottle of wine. And people are always like, yeah. look, it's my one glass of wine. You're like, yeah. that is not one standard That's drink, not what though. It's like when they say like eight cups of water a day. They're not yeah. talking about 250 milliliters, the measurement of a cup. Yeah. They're talking, talking about, like a, about like a glass. Um, you know, one thing, though, is like it says heavy drinking is the number of drinks a week, which is 15 or more for men. And moderate drinking is two drinks a day which in a week would get you to 14 drinks. We'd be pretty close to heavy Very drinking. Because that's what I was thinking. When I saw that, it was like, if I had if, if I had two drinks a day, and in particular, if you drink like beer or whatever, but I was yeah. just like, oh my God. It's I, the same the, with women. The yeah. havoc it would wreck on my body. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is the same same yeah. for women. I just think like, I mean, obviously the, the men's number is almost double the women's number, as we talked about because of our different tolerances. But I was just yeah. like, two drinks a night. It's like, I used to be in a bad habit of like, you know, have a beer a night kind of thing. Yeah. Even that, I was like, it's like you got to cut down on the beer. You put five pounds on in a month or whatever. Yeah. Like just, just drinking beer. And another fun fact, I'm just going to sprinkle them through as we go. Yeah, uh, that's a good way. So we know that alcohol is incredibly calorie, in, like dense, right? Yeah. So uh, I Beer have... has food value, yeah. <laughs> but food doesn't have beer value. Aww. Classic. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was like, unless the food is like really off. If it was like, oh. really fermented, oh. Oh. Um, it's okay. Just stick to your edibles if you're gonna go. Yeah. If you want to eat something and feel effect, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So with so alcohol on, on its own has a high calorie count. There's I've had a number of friends who are like they're like yeah I stopped drinking for a couple of months and I lost a bunch of weight. Yeah. Um, you're like yeah that's <laughs> it happens. But drinking alcohol also makes you more. It makes you like eat and snack more and more absent-mindedly. So there have been mm. studies where they'll take people and like. They'll give this half, like, real alcohol, and they'll give this half, they're like, it's beer, but it's not really beer. Yeah, it's like alkalized beer or whatever, right? Yeah, and they, like, put a bunch of snacks in front of them, and the group that eats, or the, the group that has the real alcohol will snack a lot more mm-hmm. than the group that doesn't have the alcohol. That explains, like, 2 a.m. drunk snacks. Yeah. For sure. I mean, because I, I always thought it was just an aspect of the inebriation, like, just because you're drunk, so your inhibitions are really low. But yeah, like... Obviously, it there's be part both, of both yeah. compounding things together, yeah. right? And when your inhibitions are low, that has to do with the effect of alcohol on your brain. Right, mm-hmm. Davis? Yeah, so I said a few times, like, the pharmacology. We want to look at the pharmacology of alcohol. Pharmacology is really just the study of how drugs affect the body uh, and the different mechanisms by which they do that. Alcohol, of course, being a drug. I had a really heated debate as a teenager with, <laughs> with someone I worked with over this where they were like, well, they, they were like, I don't take drugs for anything. Like, I don't even take painkillers to the hospital if I need stitches kind of thing. Like, nothing like that. And I was like, yeah, but you drink. And he was like, drink, like, alcohol's not a drug. And I'm like... Alcohol's a drug. Alcohol's a drug. It's classified <laughs> as a depressant. Like, you, you know, by all means, don't take painkillers, but, like, at least be honest about... Anyway, this is all... It's all beside yeah. the point. I'm Alcohol still very is a drug. About this. Caffeine is a drug. Yep, exactly. These are just it's, exactly. It's just like they're just socially t- acceptable drugs. Exactly. And when things have one long legacies and then two legalization, the way we talk about them is it ends up being very different, right? Yeah. Even and look at just how things are only starting to shift for cannabis. Yeah. Right. And I think the war on drugs really 
changed yes. everyone's opinion of the word drug. It, uh, I think it's really, yeah, exactly. Because drugs then more became synonymous with like narcotics and yeah. opioids. Bad. But but alcohol kind of doesn't have that because it's not a scheduled drug. So yeah. anyway, but it, it affects, is a controlled substance though. Yeah. And it affects you a lot. Uh, absolutely. So do you want me to go through this? Let's do it. All right. I'm going to do this because this is just a lot of esoteric stuff, you know, proteins and whatnot. But in your brain, there's a, and, and this is actually in most, uh, I think it's something like 60 plus percent or something of all mammals have this protein in them. Or well, you see like animals getting drunk. There's yep. video of like when the trees, like, I think it's Africa, like the, the big fruit trees will, the fruit will fall and will start to ferment. And then yep. you get like elephants coming over and monkeys and yep. like basically you're getting hammered. Oh, and we'll get to that too. The monkeys, they're searching for it. But yeah, so most animals, like a lot of animals, not even just mammals, have these particular protein structures in their brain. It's called the GABA receptors. So there's GABA A and GABA B. GABA A is a little bit more well understood. It's not really super important what those specifically are, but they're proteins on the cellular membranes of the cell. So, you know, all of our cells have a little phospholipid bilayer that circles all the good stuff inside of it. And proteins end up sitting in that cellular membrane and they help things cross, they do work, they signal to each other, they, you know, um, they allow cells to kind of communicate with each other, all sorts of different things. Very important for function. Exactly. They, and the, the, the gamut of things that these proteins do is just endless, right? All the cellular processes. But the GABA receptors are... Um, they are in nerve cells, so they're naturally occurring in the brains of a lot of organisms. They're brain and CNS, so spinal uh, spinal cord, central nervous system protein, and they are uh, they are inhibitory neurotransmitters. So when they are activated, they decrease the likelihood that cells will signal. Basically, it increases the threshold by which cells need to like send a signal, like how they have to send them. Uh, so what happens is when, so when they're open and normal, they're, uh, they're not, they're allowing, um, signals to pass through kind of normally. Yeah. But when they are inhibited or when they're bound by their target amino acid, which is gamma amino butyric acid, which is sort of where GABA comes from, uh, they, uh, it, so GABA ask, acts as an inhibitory, uh, chemical to the GABA receptor and it calms excited nerves, prevents them from firing as quickly, and has sort of a sedative effect. It's like comes along as like, yo, chill, man. You don't yeah. have to work this hard. Exactly. Uh, so it's involved in a wide variety of nerve, nerve processes. And a lot of this has to do with some feedback loops in the brain, where you might have a stimulating um, uh, sort of reaction or whatever, and there's a, you know, a number of cell signals that happen to like stimulate your body. Like maybe you have to run away really quickly or whatever, just use a simple explanation. And then some signals start to tell your brain, okay, the danger is passed and we need to go back to normal functioning and we need to calm down. And then it might trigger the release of more GABA, which will bind to these receptors and help kind of stop that feedback process. Right. And sometimes it'll, it'll do the opposite, right? Sometimes you'll need sedation and then want to excite later all these different feedback loops in the brain that control our behaviors essentially. So the GABA receptor is a target of a ton of different drugs. This includes some like benzeotropics, things that are used for anti-anxiety, anti-depression, right? Not super, we don't need to really get too much into them, but other things like muscle relaxants as well, again, because of the sedative effect and certain epilepsy drugs. Again, because one of the things of epilepsy is random nerve firing in the brain. Yeah. Uh, so alcohol the, the chemical structure, the ethyl alcohol, that little floating molecule, mimics GABA 
the shape of it essentially and the electronics of it, the, the, the electron cloud, the polarity, and it will bind to the, the GABA receptor in the same place and it will inhibit cell signaling. It also inhibits the action of another neurotransmitter glutamate, which is an exciter at a different protein site, M NMDA. It, it's got a big long name, N-methyl-D aspartate glutamate receptor. And again, and normally this NMDA receptor balances out the GABA process. So again, these are kind of the two ends of the seesaw a little yeah. bit controlling everything. And so what's happening is alcohol is both creating the sedation effect from an activated GABA protein and preventing the excitatory, the excitatory um, response from glutamate or the ability of glutamate to trigger that excited response. So that little seesaw, instead of being balanced out, is going to tip very heavily towards the... Sedation side. Yes. And this is where alcohol gets its moniker as a depressant. Yeah, you might think it's bringing you up and giving you energy and all social energy and all that, but that mm -hmm. has to do a lot more with it taking away your... Or, yeah, removing your inhibitions. Chemically, it is a depressant. Yeah. So what... So this is the biochemistry of what alcohol is doing in the brain but what how what does this result in in terms of our behavior sarah well uh, as i said it messes with your inhibitions or your yeah. inhibitions i guess it makes you more likely to do stuff you wouldn't normally do it makes you less self-conscious it makes you more bold it does all of this stuff uh it's working on your cerebral cortex right so this is your like your uh, your cerebral cortex your i guess your frontal cortex yeah, the, well, the cerebellum, right? I don't know. I'm not a brain. I'm, I'm not very good with my brain anatomy. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it alcohol reduces your judgment and depresses inhibition, right? So it makes you stop not stop stopping yourself, basically. Um, it can also reduce your ability to multitask. You can't focus on a bunch of stuff at once. It blunts your senses. Um, mm. This also links into like people will say, I mean, you always see like drunk people out in winter without proper coats. Uh, so part of this could be this blunt senses thing, but it also, alcohol actually increases the flow of warm blood to your skin. Yeah. It's a vasodilator. So your exactly. blood vessels dilate. Yeah. So this is part of why people think that, or people say like wine could be healthy for your heart, mm. like red wine, because it's a vasodilator. Um, but that doesn't actually mean you're getting warm. Yeah. Like you're not, your body itself is going to get colder because your blood's going to come to the surface and get cooled by the air. So Put a coat on in the winter if you're going to go drink. Yeah. Interestingly, <laughs> like, so St. Bernard's, which are sometimes used for mountain rescue, traditionally would carry a little cask of brandy around their oh. neck when they would rescue, like, avalanche victims or people stranded in the snow. And again, yeah, it's not so much because they think, like, oh, the brandy's going to make you warm. But particularly when you're going to rescue someone, they've been frozen for a really long time. The, the blood vessels in their hands and their feet have really, really constricted. It may help stave off frostbite by acting as a vasodilator, the brandy. Yeah. One, it signals to someone that rescue is near. And then two, when you get to that person, it will make them easier to move because now they their, their joints that have become so stiff because there's so little blood flow now have an opportunity to warm up a little bit and they might be able to help, you know, like get back to, or like get themselves into, you know, a stretcher or whatever it might be, right? Yeah, and it might help them be like calmer or braver yes. as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it also, alcohol will also distort and slow down your brain. Mm -hmm. so it takes more time to do things. Your perceptions are skewed. So not only are you making decisions that you wouldn't normally make, you're not having the time to think about them all the way through because it's taking so much longer. Exactly. Um, and then it also messes with your limbic system. So you end up in a heightened state of emotion. What? Drunk ne people never, being emotional? Never seen that before. <laughs> Definitely never like walked into the bathroom of a bar or club and you're like, why is someone crying in here? Yeah. Why is there always someone crying always at the party? Someone crying. Um, and memory lapses, you know, the blackouts. 
and then your cerebellum is also affected. So this makes movements uncoordinated, affects balance. That's why you end up with a like, uh, walk on this line and touch your nose to mm -hmm. test if you are drunk. And it also messes with your hypothalamus and pituitary gland. These control your, like a lot of your hormones and things like that. And this is where your like sexual desires are uh, influenced a lot by these glands. So uh, it increases sexual desire while decreasing your sexual ability. And there's actually a quote in Shakespeare about this. It's from Macbeth, act two, scene three. Uh, <laughs> the porter is talking to Macduff. So uh, Macduff goes, what three things does drink especially provoke? And the porter says, Mary, sir, nose painting, sleep, and urine. Lechery, sir, it provokes and unprovokes. It provokes the desire, but takes away the performance. And there's more to that quote, but I just think it's... That's really pretty fun, funny. Right? Well, yeah, it's a perfect then, encapsulation of that point. Yeah. Right? And then, like, nose painting. Like, a lot of people, you end up with a red nose when you're drinking. Yep. Um, yeah. Sleep, you might pass out. And urine, because, <laughs> you know, uh, let's jump into what that is. Well, one of the things that it's affecting in the pituitary... You actually went past it. I did um, it. One of the things that <laughs> alcohol right affects here. in the pituitary is uh, is a secretion that the pituitary gland makes that causes kidney water reabsorption. So this is what allows your kidneys to reabsorb some of the water that's in your bloodstream and use it for other stuff and whatnot. Um, and without it being secreted, it doesn't do that reabsorption, and so you increased your you have increased urine production. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And Sarah's going to say this next part because she's not biased from my previous discussion with Kyle <laughs> about a particular meh called breaking the seal. Yeah, so breaking the seal is uh, not real. You're right, Kyle. You win this <laughs> round. <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it just has to do with, like, you yeah. are, when you're out drinking, like, when you start drinking, you're typically drinking a lot more fluid than you would normally be drinking. Yeah. Like, if you drank water at the rate that you drink when you're on a night of binge drinking, you'd probably have to pee the same amount. Because it's just, like, fluid content. And your bladder can only hold three, three to four hundred milliliters of liquid. Mm. It's not that big. That's like twelve ounces. Uh, and because it's uh, alcohol is a diuretic, right? It suppresses the release of vasopressin. It's another thing we spoke about in a couple, mm. of, a couple episodes ago, um, which is the thing that tells your kidney to absorb those fluids and distribute to the rest of your body. So if you have a reduced amount of this uh, anti-diuretic hormone going on, then the liquid you consume goes more directly straight into your bladder. Yeah. And you pee more. Yep. So. Yeah, breaking the seal comes from this idea that the first time you pee after drinking, you're then going to be up every time. But yeah, it's just a yeah. perception thing. Yeah. yeah, you've opened the floodgates. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah, it's not truly being true. You're consuming so much more liquid. Yeah. yeah. And it's catching up to you after that first one. So. Yeah. Uh, and then it also affects your medulla, which is your brain stem. So like large amounts of alcohol will make this shut down, which is very, very bad because the medulla is responsible for your basic life functions yeah the uh, lizard if, brain yeah if you've seen uh water boy the medulla or oh, what are they always talking about the medulla oblongata yeah which is like the part of your brain responsible for anger it's all part of the lizard brain anyway um <laughs> yeah so when it's affecting this it will begin with lethargy and it can get you into unconsciousness and it can be fatal if it's untreated this is that alcohol poisoning we yeah. were talking about uh and so alcohol poisoning is one of the things that can come with your short-term health risks of alcohol um, the signs of alcohol poisoning, which you should be aware of if you are binge drinking or with people who are drinking, so you can keep an eye out for these symptoms. So if they're disoriented or confused, they're passing out, you can't wake them up. If they have slow, irregular breathing, 
If they are bluish or pale and their skin is cold and clammy, if their heart rate is really slow or if they're vomiting while they're passed out, these are all signs of alcohol poisoning. And what to do if this happens is gently roll the person on their side, tilting their head back and gently tucking the top hand under the chin to keep the mouth open and the airway clear. So this is like, you don't want someone who's passed out with alcohol poisoning on their back because if they, if they vomit, they're going to aspirate, they're going to choke on that vomit and uh, not be able to breathe and they could die that way. So if you're in a situation and you have to keep someone safe and they've consumed too much alcohol um, and you can't get to, you can't call 911, which is absolutely what you should do, um, make sure they are sleeping on their side and try not to leave them alone. Try to stay with them and monitor them. Mm-hmm. And other things that can happen with binge drinking is injuries. So personal injuries like falling or drowning or getting burned, these can all happen, but also motor vehicle crashes. We all know don't drink and drive and violence. So, you know, it could be anything from the two guys fighting outside the bar to uh, homicide, suicide, sexual assault, all the, all the, the flavors of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as is part of the binge drinking culture is risky sexual behavior. So this can lead, this is like unprotected sex with strangers or multiple sexual contacts, multiple unprotected sexual contacts, which can lead to STDs and or pregnancy. And for pregnant women who drink, it can lead to miscarriage, stillbirth, and uh, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. So lots of bad short-term effects, but wait, there's more. There are long-term health risks that are pretty bad. So you can have damage to various parts of your body, like your stomach, your pancreas, your liver, which is anything from inflammation up to full-on failure. Cirrhosis. Uh, Cirrhosis of the liver. Yeah. Uh, And your brain. And then it can also cause high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, liver disease, and digestive problems. A variety of different cancers, like breast, mouth, throat, esophagus, voice box, liver, colon, and rectum cancers. It can weaken your immune system. It can lead to learning and memory problems. Uh, it can lead to mental health problems like depression and anxiety or worsen those like worsen those states if you are prone to those. And it can cause social problems and you can end up in an alcohol use disorder or alcohol dependency, which can then lead to all of the physical symptoms. Mm-hmm. So those are all the bad things. Mm-hmm. Well, not all the bad things, a lot of the bad That's things. a lot of the things. <laughs> it's that a lot of bad things. But so now let's go into a couple of fun questions that you might have. Mm-hmm. It's going to be rapid fire. Yeah. It's going to come at you quick. Ask me some questions, Davis. All right. Does eating a big meal affect your blood alcohol level? Yes. Eating can, a substantial meal can help slow the absorption of absorption rate of alcohol into the bloodstream. Because most of the absorption happens in your intestines. So if you have a bunch of food in your stomach, it will slow the alcohol getting into your intestines. And also, there's an enzyme in your liver that processes alcohol. Uh, and that is present in small amounts in your stomach lining. So if the alcohol has to hang out in your stomach lining a little longer, it will start to be uh, processed there in little bits, um, and then it will go into the intestines. And also men have slightly more of that enzyme in their stomach than women, so men who eat before drinking will feel this effect even more. Next question. All right. Do bubbles get you intoxicated more quickly than still wine? Classic, that champagne will get you really drunk and leave you really hungover. Kind of is the answer to this one. Uh, So bubbles do encourage the stomach to empty which means that bubbly wine will get into the intestine faster and will be absorbed faster, but this can be offset kind of by like individual genetics. Mm-hmm. The champagne thing comes more from the fact that one, often champagne is drank, uh, drunk at a special occasion at the end of the night after consuming other types of alcohol and the dryness and the fizziness of it will contribute to it. And the, uh, the sugar, the amount of sugar that's in champagne will contribute to the, uh, the hangover. Uh, and on that note, 
there's a classic saying, beer before liquor, never been sicker. Liquor before beer, you're in the clear. How true is this? Kind of, but not really. Mm. So this comes down again, we were talking about volume of drink and the alcohol content in the drink. So uh, a beer takes a lot longer to drink than a shot of liquor, right? Mm. So the reason they say beer before liquor never been sicker is if you start the night drinking beer and then you switch to liquor, by the time you're switching to liquor, you are more inebriated, your inhibitions are much less, and you're less able to monitor how much you're drinking. And so you might end up drinking a lot more liquor and if you drink it in the second half of the night compared to the beer you drank in the first part. Mm. But if you drink liquor first, you are better able to like monitor how much you're drinking as you go. You're drinking smaller portions of, li- of the alcohol itself. Um, and then if you switch to beer later on, especially like a lower alcohol content beer, then you just monitor yourself better and you drink slower as the night goes on. So kind of. Okay, a couple more. Um, what is a hangover? We don't really know. Not completely. Uh, it has a, a whole bunch of different effects in it. It has genetics involved. Some people don't experience hangovers basically at all. It has to do with a partial drop in glucose. So this is hangover cure idea that a lot of us think of as like a big greasy breakfast the next day. The main thing that that could be helping is those are high in glucose, lots of sugar. So you would just be replenishing that glucose that you lost. And then also dehydration is part of this. So one, you're peeing a lot more because you're, as we just spoke about, and then you're also not drinking water as you're drinking alcohol. So you're not replenishing that water. This is why some people have the idea of like, oh, well, as soon as I get home from drinking, I immediately chug two glasses of water. And then I know that that will make me wake up at 3 a.m. and I'll drink two more glasses of water. And that helps me not have a hangover the next day. Mm. Dehydration is a part of it too. Uh, and then it, it could also have to do with a, a byproduct of how our liver breaks down alcohol, the byproduct of acetylaldehyde, which is estimated to be 30 times more toxic than alcohol to our bodies. And this can cause sweating, nausea, and vomiting. Mm-hmm. Interesting little thing quickly about uh, the liver and processing alcohol and binge drinking is if you are, you know, you have a night of binge drinking, then you're hungover the next morning, don't take acetaminophen products. So things like Tylenol. Uh, Tylenol is really, really hard on the liver and particularly the same proteins that are used to process alcohol. And so taking acetaminophen after a night of heavy drinking can actually torture your liver really, really easily. It can do a lot of damage to your liver um, by taking that drug. Okay. So so stick to your like ibuprofens and stuff like that if you need something to help with a headache after a hangover. Good to know. Mm -hmm. Then I have two more fun facts. Okay. So... Is red wine good for the heart? Yes, because it has polyphenols, and the polyphenols are what increases vasodilation, so your blood vessels dilating, which could decrease your blood pressure, right? which is good. Uh, Darker wines contain more polyphenols, but polyphenols are not only found in dark wines, they're found in lots of drinks and food. So the same amount of polyphenols in uh, like your standard unit of wine is like 24 grams of walnuts. It's like six or seven walnuts. It's really not a lot. Has the same amount of polyphenols, uh, along with like 25 grams of 70% dark chocolate or an apple and a half, or even like a cup of filter coffee. Like these things all have the same amount of polyphenols. So the idea that like wine is really good for you, it came from the 1990s in a study about the French paradox, as it's called. So the French diet is very high in saturated fats, but the uh, French population has a low incidence of heart disease. So people were like, maybe it's the wine. Uh, 
and there is marginal protective effect against heart disease if you're drinking small amounts of alcohol in general, except for women 55 and over who uh, it has been studied there is a benefit from drinking two glasses of wine a week, about hmm. five units. Interesting. Yeah. There and last one. Does alcohol help you sleep? Yes, no. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so alcohol can help you fall asleep and you have a very deep sleep at first, but you're more likely to have interrupted, fragmented, and lighter sleep for the second half of the night. Hmm. Now, I know I feel this. Like if I have a few drinks, I'll pass out, but then I'll wake up and I will have a very hard time getting back to sleep after mm. that. I wonder if this is why people who have like been really heavily drinking when they like sleep tend to snore more because oh. snoring is often indicative of a, of a lighter sleep cycle Interesting. Um, or more, a more interrupted sleep cycle, like sleep apnea. That's what's happening really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this disruptive effect of alcohol is actually stronger in older people. Our sleep gets more fragile as we get older. So when you're in like, by the time you're like 40 and 50, this disruptive alcohol effect of alcohol is much stronger. Mm -hmm. Excellent. All right. So we're coming close to the end here. Uh, we're going to have to skip over some points that we maybe wanted to cover because we talked too long. I've talked too long about brewing. We've talked a lot um, about chemistry. Yeah. And then the chemistry. <laughs> thing. Well, then you, you asked me these questions and you put me on these tangents. I blame you. What? Um, you know, you know what my storytelling is like. You cannot distract me. I keep... You've got to keep this train on the tracks. All right. Well, All train right. on the tracks. Okay. So we wanted to talk a little bit about like the history of alcohol consumption. And there's really just like a handful of like major points that we wanted to yeah. make here. The biggest one being that alcohol consumption may have begun as early as 100,000 BCE. So before, so this is over, this is 100,000 years ago. So long ago. So long ago. <laughs> the first archaeological evidence of human fermented alcohol comes from residue on pots from 6300 BCE. So again, about 8,000 years ago. But the first evidence of cultivation of grains begins in 8,000 BCE from our archaeological record. So that's 10,000 years ago. And there's some belief that fermented, that the first grains may have been grown not for bread making purposes but for alcohol fermentation purposes which makes a lot of sense because alcohol is a lot easier to make happen than bread and alcohol fermentation was a process that we could observe in the natural yeah. world where you don't see loaves of bread spouting <laughs> out out of nowhere because so many steps to bread <laughs> yeah well exactly right and we were sarah and i were talking about before the podcast too where the steps make some sense too where you think you know to make bread you need flour then you need yeast then you need water and you need to put it in conditions and then you need to bake it. Yeah. How do you know you need flour if you're not already making flour from something else? How do you know what yeast does if you're not already using yeast intentionally to do something else? So like we said with the malting process, right, you're turning that grain into a flour product and they may have realized over time that like, okay, if you take the raw grain, you get this kind of fermentation. Well, if we break it down, it gets better and better and better to the point where, or maybe then you don't have a bunch of like husks and stuff that you're drinking, right? So there's some, and you know, sort of when you think about the logic of it, you can certainly see how potentially, you know, that was the original intention. Uh, and this also comes from there's our sort of dependence or the cultural pervasiveness of alcohol or uh, our anatomy's sort of drive towards it may come from something that's called the drunken monkey hypothesis, which is this idea that, and this has been shown in sort of genetic studies and things like that, that early monkey species or like really, really early humans uh, may have evolved to seek out ethyl alcohol 
because its scent meant fruit was near, right? Like you were yeah. saying with the fruit on the, the savanna, fruit, yeah. yeah, falls from the tree, it starts to ferment, the animals start to come because they're attracted by the scent, right? Yeah. And if you've ever been around fermenting fruit, it smells a lot stronger than just like fresh fruit, right? Fresh fruit has a great smell, but like fermenting fruit, you can smell it for, for much greater distances, essentially. Uh, and so this may be the initial reason why early humans became interested in alcohol. It was an indication of high energy foods and then developed fermentation techniques. And yep. if you ate some fermented fruit, you might be like more chill and you might feel good and like yep. encourage social cohesion and all those yep. sorts of things. Yeah. And so beer drinking or alcohol drinking has been a part of society like like documented since the early like Sumerians, 3000, 2000 BCE, and appears in a number of different cultures throughout society all the way up to present day. Yeah. Present day like St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick's Day. So you might be listening to this and enjoying this episode on St. Patrick's Day. And we're going to sit here and enjoy it with you. That's right, baby. <laughs> Cheers. Ooh, 18 plus podcast. Yeah. No. Um, so we wanted to talk to wrap things up. Not so much a science thing, but a little bit uh, the history of St. Patrick's Day, where it comes from. Uh, this beer has been sitting here in here the whole time we've done the podcast. It's a little warm. It's warmer than it was when it got here. Yeah. But, uh, it, it's still drinkable. Yeah, still um, very drinkable. We're drinking a Tiger Shark, which is yeah. a very fun label beer. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be careful about putting t- picking it up oh, and putting it down to make yeah. noise. Okay. So, St. Patrick's Day. I, I had a good old Catholic upbringing. Don't ask me about it now. Um, <laughs> Davis knows a lot more about this than I a do. Weird amount. Uh, so St. Patrick, obviously, he's a Catholic saint. Uh, he died about the fifth century, so about four hundred. You know, so this is about fifteen hundred years ago. Uh, he is. He was uh, actually taken as a slave from Ireland. Uh, I can't remember by whom. And then he ended up coming back to Ireland after he'd been converted to Christianity, and he brought Christianity to Ireland in, in the fifth around the fifth century. Uh, so, and then, you know, in about, I think it was the 11th century, people start kind of celebrating the feast of St. Patrick's Day. Like all the saints have a feast, particular day of the year where they're kind of celebrated or whatever. Obviously he was fairly, um, important to the Irish culture that had, after they'd been converted into Christians and stuff like that. Uh, and traditionally in Ireland, so St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, always occurs during Lent major Christian festival. Usually the 40 days of Lent leading up to Easter, you abstain from eating certain foods, typically no meat, uh, only fish on Fridays. And then nowadays people typically abstain from something. Yeah, they'll give something up. Whatever. Yeah, Yeah. they'll give something up for the 40 days. So in Ireland, um, to celebrate St. Patrick's Day, the rules around consumption during Lent, particularly meat, were lifted. And so people would attend mass in the morning for St. Patrick, and then they would have a celebration in the afternoon after attending that mass. Big party. So St. Patrick is Ireland's patron saint. There's a number of myths surrounding him. Uh, the classic of he chased the snakes out of Ireland. False. There were never snakes in Ireland. Yeah, and it's a bit more <laughs> of an allegory for his conversion of the Irish people from paganism to Christianity. Don't ask me about it. He chased out all those devils. Yeah. But, but scientifically, there were never snakes in yeah. Ireland, just so you know. Uh, there's a very famous story. This comes up in Catholic school all the time. That uh, how he explained the Holy Trinity. It's very complicated. Uh, mysticism mumbo jumbo but he used the three leaves of the shamrock to sort of say that like god jesus and the holy spirit are all part of one whole shamrock has three leaves but it's still one plant blah 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 what's the fourth and the four leaf clover i don't well but is it, it us is it me i don't know i i've never <laughs> i i haven't i i didn't dissect the anal the, right. the analogy that much i just focused on the snake one yeah. like, it's not real yeah 
so the first North American celebrations occurred in about 1601. And uh, so there was, it was some like Spanish colony at one part of the States, doesn't really matter, or North America, can't really quite remember. But the big one is, so the modern idea of St. Patrick's Day. The parade and all that, the, the revelry, the drinking, all that sort the of stuff. The dying the river green. Comes sort of back from about 1772 when the first St. Patrick's Day quote-unquote parade occurs. So there were Irish soldiers that were in the British Army. Remember, Ireland is also a colony of Britain. A lot of history there. A lot of history Don't there. ask me about it. <laughs> There's a whole lot um, of So, yeah. And so uh, there were sol- Irish soldiers in the British Army who were homesick. And they marched through downtown New York City. And this is sort of the first, on St. Patrick's Day, and this is sort of the first St. Patrick's Day parade. And from there, after, especially um, during the, like, during kind of the period of Manifest Destiny and expansion and stuff like that into the West, a lot of Irish, and during the potato famine, a ton of Irish people immigrated to North America. And they formed huge communities in a lot of, especially in the States, those East Coastal cities like Boston and New York. And this drove the importance of St. Patrick's Day in those communities. And so many of the traditions that we associate with St. Patrick's Day today actually stem from those early American celebrations. And they were adopted by the Irish celebrations to capitalize it on it as a tourist attraction, essentially. Very neat. Yeah. And uh, as of 2011, it was the, I think it was an American study, the fourth most popular day for drinking. Other studies have it as the third because the... In this one, the top three are New Year's, Christmas, and 4th of July. But if you're not in the States, 4th of July doesn't really matter to you. Mm-hmm. So third or fourth highest for alcohol consumption. And uh, worldwide, 13 million pints of Guinness were consumed. I think it was like 2011 or 2018 or something. Mm. Guinness, a beautiful beer. A wonderful beer. If you don't have a taste for beer, you might not like it. No, um, yeah. It's like I, eating a loaf of bread. The first time I had a Guinness, I had it with a salad, and I Drinking didn't have a, a beer palate, and it was awful. Mm. And then years later, I now really like dark beers, and I had yeah. a Guinness. I was like, it's beautiful. I've been to the Guinness factory, and oh. I've had fresh Guinness at the Guinness factory. Just having a brag. <laughs> oh. Jealous. Unreal. Um, also, interesting thing about the Guinness factory, uh, when they built the factory in downtown Dublin, they signed a thousand year lease on the property and it's encased in like a big it's like underneath the floor in like a plexiglass display like the actual document that was declaration of independence essentially (laughs) it's kind of what it looks like yeah it's a pretty cool if you ever had the opportunity to go to the guinness factory 100 worth it yeah it would be pretty cool yeah it's very neat Um, and then over the past few years there's actually been a renewed interest in irish whiskeys irish whiskeys are selling a lot more they've had a crazy increase in the last couple years and then, uh, uh, as a bit of a downer, <laughs> I know it's your last point. You're gonna drop this one. Um, so I think I have another one I can say after this. So uh, <laughs> on St. Patty's, it is a huge binge drinking holiday. So the number of uh, fatal crashes involving alcohol go up. So on St. Patty's, more than one in three drivers in 2012 uh, involved in a fatal crash had a blood alcohol concentration over the legal limit. So if you drink, do not drive. This is again the low and slow. Uh, start low, go slow. And then mm. be aware of what you're drinking, drink your water, all of that stuff. Yep. Um, and in 2020, thanks to our lovely pandemic, uh, alcohol consumption actually went down overall. And uh, on St. Patty's Day, people weren't spending as much because they couldn't go anywhere. But it's rebounding, and it's expected to keep increasing. Because mm-hmm. people love their beers and love their green beers. Oh, yeah. It's a good time. I don't think I've ever had a green beer. No, I, well, I'm trying to think if we did in university. Probably at least once. 
There were two big drinking days in university. Homecoming in the fall and St. Patrick's Day. And they would both be basically carving copies of each other, but two different seasons. And then at Calgary, you have uh, board shorts day near the end of second term. Oh yeah, that's for the UC students. Yeah, yeah. it's a specific mm-hmm. one. It's wild. I was working. Uh, I was working as a TA there during my masters, and a board shorts day showed up. And it's like it's warm. It's like near the end of the winter semester, and everyone is just like done with school. And it was like I don't know. Was it in the morning still? Might have been like just before noon, and like people were stumbling around down the hallways. And I was like, how are you going to make it the rest of the day? But that's what it's about. It's about the boot and rally, the midday boot and rally. We used to do this in university. Get really, really drunk in the morning. Usually the daytime parties break up at about 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. You go home. You take care of your business. You, you, you puke. You do whatever. You nap. You do whatever you got to in that morning. And then you try to rally for 7 or 8 o'clock that night and go back out. This is the university binge drinking culture. Yeah, exactly. It's this is not problematic at all. It's no. great. <laughs> Again, I'm going to push that. Uh, I think the documentary is Liberated. The one on Netflix mm. about like sex and uh, spring break. Mm. and alcohol is a huge part of that yeah but anyway there you go everybody yeah. there is your alcohol from chemistry through how you make like what is alcohol and how you make different alcohols and and the effect it has on us and some myths so hopefully i hope to clear up some myths for you really if you don't want a hangover don't drink <laughs> that, the only, that's the only, the only real thing. solution <laughs> the only the only safe sex is abstinence yeah <laughs> there is some evidence that says borage or i think starflower pills can help borage oil mm. but it's not not everyone yeah again there's a lot of genetics with hangovers yeah. there's no hangover cure stop searching for it just self-care <laughs> and suffer yeah uh all right cool so there we go uh we made it all the way through lots of facts in this one this one's really dense yeah. uh i think it was good uh yeah. i have no idea what we're going to talk about next no we have a we have a list of topics we yeah. can pull from but if there's something you want us to cover then let us know and you can let us know on our socials so temporary expert just one on twitter temporary experts on instagram you can also look for third sock from the sun on instagram or facebook i'm on there too uh and if you have any questions or anything let us know also if you have a favorite drink that you really like let us know uh, share pictures of your St. Patty's celebrations mm-hmm. if you feel so inclined. Uh, and we'd love to see it. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks everybody Ooh. for listening. Oh, right. And if you really like it, please give us a, a rating or a review wherever you're listening. It really helps us out. It can help us reach new audiences and hack that algorithm. Awesome. Well, uh, for everybody here at Temporary Experts, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong. And we have been your Temporary, Temporary Experts. Experts. Thanks for listening. Watch and